everybody welcome to we've got ward a doof media podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss ward while those return to the world of parahumans my name is matt freeman in my dream room section is a derelict recording studio the sky outside the color of television tuned to a dead channel and i'm scott daly and my dream room section would be a library filled with books from that meme where people keep sticking foods in books as bookmarks for some stupid reason because people are evil it's pretty bad this is the weekly podcast where Matt and I eagerly dive into Wild Bo's world of getting very badly burned, very handsy dream monsters, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week on the show, we are continuing with Arc 16 from within with chapters 16.9 and 16.10. Victoria and friends, after surviving their worst nightmares, now have to fight against Cradle Shard Buddy. Everyone gets really very seriously injured for a moment, but then they finally kill Cradle and everything's okay again. Matt, what do you think of these two chapters? Man, these are crazy. Um, oh, yeah. We fought a lot of weird monsters in this in this mega series, multi-year spanning series. Um, <laughs> this might be the weirdest, fighting a monster that's um, four-dimensional, basically, that, that changes in shape the closer you get to it. Um, just the, the, the visuals. I, so many times during this chapter, I would just like stop and, and visualize what was happening. Yeah. I mean, a lot of cool plot stuff happens. A lot of cool character stuff happens. Obviously these are, these are some, um, great like culminations of things that were, that have been building throughout the whole story. But, um, I find myself fixating on the descriptions, the, the setting, you know, um, the visuals basically yeah. that just really, really stand out in, in these chapters. I'm glad you said that because I think that's something that's like generally tough to talk about via this format in any kind of real detailed way, because it's just going to be us like, hey, wasn't that one part cool where they did there's a really huge monster that is basically indescribable, but the book describes it anyway. That was cool. Yeah. But that's really all we can say about it. So I think it's good to, to at least lay that out at the front that, yeah, a lot a lot of the imagery of these two chapters in particular is very awe inspiring. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was happy to see Cradle's story come to an end. I think we have a lot to talk about there, about uh, how what what the book is trying to say with Cradle and what we think the book is trying to say with Cradle and his failures as a person and, and how that relates to what the book is doing with the rest of our characters. Um, it's a good time. I really enjoyed these. I liked them a lot. Not, yeah. nothing, nothing hit me quite as emotionally as last week's Chapter 8, but... Still some really good emotional dramatic beats in here. Yeah, there were a lot of um, uh, relationship um, culminations, you know, yeah, really yeah. basically characters kind of bearing their souls in one way or another. Yeah. All right. So announcements for this episode. Uh, once again, the fan art contest with the theme of reflections. Uh, the art is due September 30th at midnight, standard uh, Pacific time, Pacific standard time. Mm -hmm. uh, check out the rules in the show notes below. 
Yeah, and we've added that due date to our official Doof Media calendar as well. So in case you forget when it's due, but you remember I said this, you can go to doofmedia.com slash calendar and you will see the due date on the calendar. Yep. Next next announcement. Um, Scott's going to be out of town the last week of September. That's next so, week. Yep. So we thought we'd do a mailbag episode that week. So go ahead and email us at gotwormpod at gmail.com and yeah we've, we've yeah. already gotten quite a few via email but we're going to open it up for those of you that aren't comfortable sending emails right matt yeah uh so basically instead of having a discussion question this week it's going to be a mailbag reddit thread you know just go ahead and throw your mailbag questions in that reddit thread the one that i post in their subreddit every week yeah uh we will say however this is kind of weird timing stuff that we are going to be recording this mailbag episode the night that this that this episode you're listening to right now comes out uh, because I'm leaving after that. So if your question isn't in on the 18th of September, we're not going to answer it. It's not because we don't like you. It's just because we've already recorded the episode. Yeah. It's just the way our scheduling has to go. But we wanted to just give you guys an opportunity to just throw a few more questions at us if you don't feel like emailing us. So ask away. We'll get to all the ones we can by the time we start recording. All right, Scott, let's get into these chapters. Let's do it. 16.9. The chapter explodes into action with the heroes moving to avoid Graspy Boy's onslaught. His name is Mr. Hugs, Matt. I accept no substitutes. It's Mr. Hugs. Fine. Just accept it. Um, I really. So one of the things I that really jumped out at me at the, at the very beginning of this chapter that I really want to discuss with you, because I think it's really important to Cradle as a whole, is how Wildbow immediately at the start of this chapter draws this important connection and distinction between rain and cradle right these pa- these chapters basically serve as cradle's finale in the story and we see here at the very beginning that that, that these two characters are connected so basically mr hugs opens up the chapter by slamming arms down in two sections those sections happen to be cradles and rains and both of them move away from the damage so we see cradle and rain were almost mirrors to one another and how they moved away from the respective damage difference was Rain kept running. Um, and, and this we, we learn next chapter that the reason why Cradle isn't running is because he knows he's absolutely safe inside his um, his section. He's not going to get hurt there. So he just stays. But let's look at this metaphorically, right? Because Cradle and Rain are mirrors of each other and that they they move away from the damage done in the same way. Um, but Cradle eventually stops. Rain keeps running. Cradle is still and stagnant. Rain is constantly moving constantly evolving that's he's on a he's on a journey as a character and and cradle is not cradle is stuck staying still i think that's a perfect way of representing where these two characters are at yeah the whole theme of rain's emotion power is learning from your mistakes and cradle being incapable of feeling remorse is incapable of learning in the same way that rain is and truly changing in the same way that rain is yeah, and, and look where Cradle does stop. He stops on a stone slab that our protagonist uh, relates to a massive tombstone. Um, but it's a massive tombstone with no epigraph, right? Uh-huh. Rain continues to move, continues to change, and he lives. Cradle moves a little bit, but then he halts his progress. He stops and he dies. And the text is both telegraphing that death for us, I think, uh, as well as kind of maybe showing how history will remember cradle right indifferently no epigraph no no notes on the tombstone no best wishes no love nothing it's just it's just going to be an unmarked grave that everyone will forget about him on um i i I love that yeah i love that you're exactly right that that serves as foreshadowing except 
in that moment, you feel like it's foreshadowing of something else, or you feel like it's it's at least, you know, setting an image of like he's sitting on this tombstone that looms over all of them, implying that they're the ones who are dead. They're oh, the yeah, ones no. who, are, who are gonna die, right? It's it's death imagery, but it's death imagery that you feel like is pointed at your characters. Actually, of course, it's pointed at the guy who you know jumped up on the tombstone. Yeah, I, I, you're certainly right. The first time I read this. I immediately heard Tombstone and I bet, oh, fuck, all these people are going to die. Cradle's (laughs) Cradle's going to be bring them to the grave. Um, But yeah, I think in retrospect, I really do feel like this is like the perfect telegraph of where Cradle's journey is is ending. Yeah, yeah. So I think that it's fun at this point to talk about the the different rooms. So so Victoria, basically over the course of the first part of this chapter, she passingly describes each person's area. Tristan and Byron's involve elements of the basement where they triggered, tinted their respective colors with a day and night aspect added to it. Sveta's is basically just igneous rocks, some of it sharp. Mm-hmm. Damsel's is a derelict apartment. Uh, Victoria's is a region of cracked black and gold solar panels, distinctly without warmth. Uh, no- notably, Victoria's also wearing the black hooded top from her costume over the white dress with the watercolor Brockton Bay skyline. Yeah. Um, from the We've Got War logo. Paddletail's uh, <laughs> room is a bright bedroom with blood-stained carpet. And notably, she has the gun with her that she's been carrying for four years, apparently. Mm-hmm. Darlene is in a cluttered bedroom. Candy, a car interior. Aiden, a rooftop. Kenzie, a black bedroom illuminated by a blacked-out screen. Yeah, and so what I like about these is a lot of them... We see them. We're like, yeah, that checks out. I think Tristan and Byron's being in that basement with the different the different paint color splotches everywhere and the different light sources. I really love like the the day and night idea behind them, right? Where different light is shining through non-existent windows into each of these scenes. I think that's really atmospheric. Yeah. Um, Damsels makes a lot of sense based on what we understand about her. So so does Sveta's Tattletales as well. You said bloodstained, but unfortunately, Matt, it's not just bloodstained. It's yeah, also fluids. other things stained. And um, yeah, I thought that's that, that was one of the really interesting things about the room sections, which is something we kind of already knew from, uh, you know, the, the main the main cluster members. But just the mm-hmm. fact that um, some of them are very much oriented around the trigger. Some of them are not like what what sure. does what does black and gold solar panels have to do with Victoria's trigger, right? It's really just something that the shard chose because on some deep level it gets under her skin and messes with her. It, it, yeah, it's not a basketball court. It's not, you know, uh, a hotel room where Amy did things to her. It's, yeah, it's, it's not the hospital. It's not the hospital. It's it's these solar panels. It's this image from chapter one of the book, actually. Um, this this image of like we had a chance to start over and we colored it all gold of, of all things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. With, with the black under, under like, I love the solar paneling. Cause you're right. It is supposed to specifically go back. I mean, especially with her outfit, we're supposed to specifically channel a Victoria that we saw at the very beginning of this chapter of this book. Yeah. Um, she's wearing that dress with the attached hoodie on it that she wears in arc two. Um, she's got her hair braided, which is something I don't even know. That's, that's pre-ward too, right? Like she, I don't think she's braided her hair. You know, like she says a long, long time regularly. Yeah. Um, I think she, maybe she does it once or twice in this book, but it was definitely some glory girl esque thing. And it's very much setting up a Victoria that is like a combination of a lot of her different pieces, like, like an amalgamation of, you know, the, like she talks about all these different personas that she has. She, and it's kind of like the, 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 her represented here is kind of like 
a bunch of those personas thrown together um, in a room that is specific to the beginning of the the story. And I, that is it is really fascinating because I think you're right. It is designed to make her uncomfortable. The one thing is that it's not just gold solar paneling. It's cracked gold solar paneling, right? It's it's the second chance um, with the same mistakes and it's all crumbling around her. I really, really like that. Right. It's it evokes like a, another apocalypse having arrived. Yeah. 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 That's, that's, that's great. That's yeah. Now I kind of wish that I had checked to see when was the last time she braided her hair in the story, because it really seems like most of the images we're getting are from very early in Ward. Yeah. And I want to read into that, but I'm not sure what to read into it. I, I, I went on a journey through the first couple arcs, like literally searching for the word braid (laughs) through the text. (laughs) And I wasn't able to find anything in the first couple arcs. I do remember her talking about it later in the story. Yeah. Um, so she's definitely done it, but it's definitely, definitely not been, a thing it definitely was something that she used to do more regularly this something from an earlier time that she doesn't really do anymore um the text the text draws that out specifically so we're supposed to glean that this is not something she does regularly this is not something she would normally identify as part of her image of herself and yet here it is yeah i thought she braided her hair like when gilpatrick was talking to her in like the first chapter but not sure i might have missed it i don't know well, anyway, really, I, really interesting stuff there. Yeah. And, and Victoria concludes on this whole thing as this is us, right? She's looking around at, at their room. She's looking around at how everyone is costumed. Some people are in costumes. Some people are in civilian clothes. Some people are in a, like Victoria in mixtures of the two. And it's like, this is us. This is this is quintessential us. Ha- either how we see ourselves, how the shards see us or a combination of the two. This is us. Yeah, I, 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 like, I like that a lot. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of um, there's going to be a lot of stuff in these two chapters where it's almost just like a tiny moment that you or I wanted to pull out stuff like that thing you just did. It was yeah. just one line, really. Or like this sure. next this next bit where Tristan's put in the position where his brother is vulnerable. Like this is the first time he's been in the same space yeah. with his brother in in years. And Victoria basically orders him to, to assist her and he hesitates to leave Byron. And that's his first instinct is to stay by Byron, protect, protect Byron. And eventually he does. Well, I mean, he, he rationally understands that they have to fight, um, but it's a great it's a great moment. Um, makes me happy. Yeah, I, I love it. I mean, it's it's the it's a seeming contradiction, right? Like they've been working hard and hoping towards a, a future where they don't have to be connected to each other in this way. And the first thing he does once they're even in a dream, finally separate from each other, is is refuse to leave his side. I love it. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. God, I, lo- I love Byron and Tr- Tristan. I love them so much. They're such great characters. I'm going to be saying this all chapter long. Just be prepared for that. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, so Svetza points out that Handy Boy is manipulating the debris that it's collecting, and Victoria realizes that it's tinkering. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because we... So we kind of... We, we we kind of were primed for this a little bit. Like Cradle Shard is the Tinker Shard. We were specifically given reference back to the Endbringers, which still generally follow our power classification rules. Remember, um, Ziz is a tinkering fiend. That's what she does. And still in this moment, I was like, that's not fair. Yeah. <laughs> you can't do that. That's not fair. Why do you get to do that? Right. Although I think I think we notice as, as the readers uh, before Victoria does that could totally smash them, but it's not right. Um, it, mm-hmm. It's tinkering instead of attacking. Uh, right. Which is something she's going to notice in a minute. And then we'll probably talk about it more. Yeah. 
I really love this moment, though. Um, I, like you said, this is just going to be a bunch of random moments. But there's this <laughs> moment where Sveta is saying, I can't unfurl. And Victoria's response is, no traumatic force field for me either. Um, and it's like, first of all, just calling it the traumatic force field is wonderful. But this moment of these two characters who have this serious trauma attached to these things that are now gone from them. And even in this moment of like all is lost, like terribleness where they're fighting this giant monster thing, there's this moment of like, Oh, this is nice. Let's just, let's just acknowledge amongst ourselves that this part of it is kind of nice, but also the, the text is conveying that they don't have any of their powers at the same time. So it's using this, this character beat to convey information in two different kind of ways. I really like it. Yeah, me too. I, I know that she she's lost her powers a couple times before in the story, but this is the first time when I think the the both of them are together. Um, especially for Sveta, she's just human here. Yeah, basically. she's just she's just a human. Yeah, yeah. All right. So Victoria makes up her mind to rush the Endbringer uh, light, and she does so. Uh, so even even as her teammates kind of hang back uh, due to the attacks. Uh, interestingly you know like i said we noticed that it could crush them but it doesn't uh it only seems to manipulate the environment and its tinkerings in order to hurt or to impede them yeah which is interesting right because like we see there's a moment where she's sitting in rain's section on floorboards and it slams down on three sides of her as if to specifically like tip her into the nothingness that lies below the dream room yeah um but never attacking her directly um and it it never does attack her directly like th- throughout all of this the only harm that is done to them that we see is done via the tinkering devices or indirectly via other stuff it's throwing it's like it's not a it's like a rule you can't do it yeah well i mean it's it it's like it doesn't occur to it right they're, they're not mm-hmm. capable of, of creativity all it all it can do is manipulate objects to accomplish its its ends and so yeah that's the closest it gets really is it's like well i can try to tip the thing it kind of reminds me of like if you're trying to corral a spider in your house and you're terrified of spiders like you're not going to touch it right you're gonna you're gonna (laughs) you're gonna try to touch it with things or try to grab it with something or try to catch it in a bottle that is such Um, a good example (laughs) it's really great oh my god the shards look at us as scary insects they don't want to actually have to touch yeah a grasping self is like ew gross (laughs) gonna tinker to not have to touch it yeah i love that i love that so much (laughs) that's so great yeah now that i've Um, thought that i'm like animating its movements with a lot more jerkiness in my mind yeah yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah, but I mean, just just in general, like I love I love like this. It's this this mystery like this is this big kind of extra dimensional fight, right? Like this thing we learn in a bit that as you get closer to it, it grows bigger and more limbs and expands. And it's this big like abstract idea that is really hard to visualize. But we have these peppered within it we have these mysteries these moments where we and the the characters are wondering why isn't it just like hitting me why is yeah. it grabbing me and throwing me and I, and I think i think these little mysteries and these confusing moments of that's interesting that's kind of weird why is it doing that and like we're trying to solve the battle the key to the battle help propel you through this this thing that is so abstract that it could just be disorientingly confusing without without this stuff so i think it's a really good idea to add this this hook to the fight that's beyond just we're fighting this thing definitely yeah it's interesting wrinkles make this work right yeah because at first like when when the chapter starts you have this feeling of like oh they're just fucked 
Yeah. Um, yeah. But like like in so many of these fun battles, it's all about especially because Victoria's a protagonist, it's all about figuring out the trick. And mm-hmm. there's a couple tricks. One of the tricks is oh, it's going to be tinkering. We need to stop it from tinkering. And when it tinkers, we need to avoid its stuff. The second trick is we need to kill Cradle. And I guess trick 1.5 is as long as we stay in our areas, it won't hurt us. So, Which is, I mean, it is interesting that we see, we see it at the very beginning of this section, it grabs stuff from Rain and Cradle sections. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the chapter opens and everyone's in their own section because they've woken up from their dream and it automatically grabs stuff to the point where Cradle and Rain need to move out of the way. So if they had just stayed still, like what would have happened there? You know, I don't know. I don't know. It, it, it might have. I mean, my assumption would be that it would just make it would still make weapons, but then it would just use it would just hold them in reserve. Yeah. yeah, just chill until someone crosses the line. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, uh, Sveta is the first to realize that the creature is four dimensional, uh, and it and seems to grow larger as they approach because um, dimensions. Uh, <laughs> I, I notice at this point that Sveta seems to be making a lot of the key observations in this fight. I was wondering if you made anything of that. Um, I mean, one of my thoughts is like maybe it has to do with her own nature as a former tangle of limbs attached to a central mass. Uh, maybe it's like a, a shard kind of uh, meeting of minds thing. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I think I think that makes a certain a certain amount of depressing sense. Um, I do like how we've kind of been primed for Victoria's almost stubborn non-comprehension of that, though. Like, you know, we made jokes throughout the entirety of this arc about how Victoria, like stubborn, stubbornly refusing to admit that Victoria or that uh, Kenzie's box is actually a box. Right. Uh-huh. And it's become very clear to us throughout the story that it's like a multidimensional box. Like right. there's things in other dimensions that we're not seeing. But Victoria has like been adamant throughout this entire thing is like, it's not a box. Yeah. Like every time they're talking about it, it's the non box thing. So we've kind of been set up for this, this idea that Victoria's ability to comprehend these extra dimensional things is just not there. And so of course she is not the one that catches up on this, first she has to be told it and even then she has trouble fully understanding it until that moment where she's like underneath it looking up and seeing how big and massive i think she describes it as um what what i could imagine a planet might look like if i were separated from our world by only a few hundred miles like it's this this incomprehensibly large massive thing um and i i really like that i like that i like the victoria just her complete inability and all her strategies on the tinkering front were based on a normal thing that doesn't expand out to infinity the closer you get to it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting because for all of parahumans, we, and I think the fandom at large talks about dimensions in this sort of sci-fi way of talking about dimensions where it's yeah. like, yeah, you're I, I from a different dimension and there's a portal between the two dimensions. And when, when we say dimension, we almost just mean universe, like a, like a parallel universe. We don't really mm-hmm. mean dimension in the spatial sense or anything like that. But we know that these shards have this nature of just like part of their makeup as organisms is an ability to worm between dimensions. It's, yeah. it's just what they are. And framing this thing as being four dimensional, I was like, wow, that that like works for me so well because it makes total sense that literally the shards themselves are not, are not localized to, to three dimensional space. Like they, they are four dimensional. They, they can leak in and out of whatever dimension they want to. And that's, that was literally like, we know that from Scion's POV. Yeah. Um, so the idea that, that when they are closer to its home turf, 
it has these properties where I mean, I, I'm sure people have seen like the animation of a tesseract, the, the animation of a of a of a four dimensional cube where yeah. like it rotates, but as it rotates, it's like turning inside out. Basically, it's 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 hard to explain. It's hard to visualize because you're projecting a four dimensional thing onto a two dimensional surface so that you can see it, um, which is kind of what's happening here, right? Um, hard to hard to visualize, hard to think about, but absolutely works for me on a sci-fi level that um, this creature is is basically four-dimensional. And yeah. I'm kind of hoping that that continues to be a thing, and I think that it will, because when they get into the shard world, everything has this weird flippy property of it could be a could be a ditch, could be a, a mountain. You can't really tell. Yeah, um, anyway. I, I'm... I'm- I, I like it here too a lot. I'm worried about going into Shard World. I'm I'm very excited about it. I think it's gonna be really cool. I am worried of like losing the thread a little bit when you get like so abstract where like you can no longer emotionally map yourself to what's physically happening in physical space. I mean, maybe this is just like a, I'm worried for my sake because my brain starts to get confused when we start expanding out in, into these non non regular plane of existence things. Um I'm not saying it's going to be bad, but I'm like, oh, I hope we don't get too abstract where I'm just like, wait, what are we doing? I think the the moment at the end of this chapter where like Ashley pushes Victoria, the end of these two chapters where Ashley pushes Victoria into a, a thing and then she comes out a different. It was already for me pushing like, <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> yeah. So I'm just hoping I, I think I think I have faith that this book is going to be able to do that in an interesting way that doesn't cause me to like lose the thread. But it, it is something that's in the back of my mind as we start to get more abstract and more extra dimensional. See, that scene was just the opposite of the part at the end of uh, Indiana Jones and um, The Last Crusade when he steps out on the plank that he doesn't see. Because in this case, she thinks that it's a surface, but it's actually a, a, a declivity. And it sure. works perfectly. Anyway, sure. um, Victoria <laughs> then proceeds to fight the shard with a piece of wood. It's going to work. And uh, damages it a little bit. Only so, It's one down. Only a lot more to go. Yep. What I do like, though, I mean, we'll get into this as we go through the fight, but I do like that regardless of what dimension this thing exists on, it still has to follow some of the rules of existence. Right. Like it is still like uh, their main strategy for fighting this thing is literally like messing with its weight differential, how it's putting its weight down and just screwing with it and making it continue to have to adjust to support itself. So like, it's not like this thing just gets to break rules, right? It's just the rules are slightly different. I like Absolutely. That. Yeah. It, it reminds me of how the inbringers have like a, um, a sh- uh, I don't remember what the word was exactly, but like you can injure Leviathan up to a certain point. Right. Um, but then he kind of stops being injurable. But yeah, like the, absolutely it, it, it works for me that it's not just invulnerable. Mm-hmm. Makes me wonder if like the core of the inbringers that was so indestructible was actually this like four dimensional substance. Because I remember when Chevy tries to stab it and his power just goes haywire, it like disengages. Anyway, could be me- mega going into the theory pool here but I, I like it <laughs> so i love i love some of the things that are happening here um so first of all there's victoria trying to visualize the upcoming situation trying not to think about how my mom had drilled visualize into me back when i played basketball and then followed up later in the chapter by the two ideas were half formed and they combined into one notion that i put into motion before even being able to fully visualize it my mom had dropped the visualize part of 
of her general encouragement when I'd become a hero, like the basketball was always a thing of dreams, fancy, and imagination, and the hero stuff, that was what required practical advice and attention. Um, <laughs> so, I, and I think you were, you might have been the one who drew my attention to the fact that she keeps mentioning basketball. <laughs> yeah, which is, I don't think, you know, with a couple of exceptions, I don't think it's something she really talks about regularly she she does not talk about the her time playing basketball before she triggered very much because it's a very emotional affecting time for her but she's just seen this dream and had those feelings all come back those memories come back to her about this time in her life um and i think that's important because i think what that's doing is kind of showing her mindset showing how the 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 pre-room dreams have affected them have affected her and therefore you can extrapolate that to everyone else right everyone else is probably going through something similar has probably just had to witness one of the most difficult times of their life and they're it's churning through their head especially especially tattletale who we're going to spend a lot of time on next chapter yeah it's hitting her the hardest yeah i feel like i'm reading too much into this but this the wording of dreams fancy and imagination doesn't that strike you as words that are often used to describe the shards and the way they think of things um yeah, I like, like that. Masks and, and, and you know, illusions, fancy dreams, uh, their fascination with dreams. Anyway, just yeah, stuck out I like to me. that. I, I like that a lot. Um, and I mean, it just like just the just the idea of like basketball was never the real thing. I never actually cared like I care from Carol's perspective. Yeah. Like I never I, I coached you and I gave you like advice. Just, you know, just visualize, which right. is like. Is is a thing people say in sports a lot, uh-huh. and I've never found it like helpful. Like when I played baseball, my coach would just visualize you hitting the ball. I was like, "What? <laughs> what?" I, I, I think it can actually work, but I the, think it might. It might can, but I, I mean, I think it can help. I should say, but um, it, it also works perfectly as just a way of saying like, I don't actually want to have to do anything so you know just uh sit quietly and visualize yeah although i although i the the single best thing of helping me in in baseball was the whole keep your eye on the ball thing while you're Uh batting which i like always like like filed away in the same category as visualize which is just like something my coaches and dads said to me as like a word of encouragement Uh but then i remember the one day i was like oh i can watch the ball from Uh the time it leaves the glove all the way to where i'm swinging and I was like, whoa, whoa. And then I got better at baseball. Yeah. Look at that. Right. Um, so maybe visualize is good. Good advice. I don't know. I don't yeah. Know. Yeah. I think by the time I stopped playing any of those types of sports, I was still at the phase of like, oh, it's coming. Close your eyes and swing. Um, <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So she finally gets close to it and she looks up, you know, like you mentioned, realized it's something planet sized, just enormous, covered in limbs, countless, countless limbs. Uh, and this close to it, she sees silhouetted in the dust images of the aliens that perhaps originated some of this limb tech. Yeah, the bean people. Yeah, the they're bean described folk. as bean-shaped people. Um, and they're talking and whispering and there's calculations in the air. And this is where we're, get, we're really selling this idea that we're not just hanging out on the street corner anymore. We are in this this other world. And I think the dust... I think it's uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but like this right now we're in the section of the room that 
the shard thing is right like we get told that the door that's at the back of the room also is taking up that that what was the fifth section and the the floor there looks similar to the floor beyond the door so like the dust that we're throwing up is literally a part of shard world and so if there's all this this stuff attached to it there's like because it's just a physical manifestation of this idea this memory bank almost and so even the dust being thrown up has things in it has ideas has memories has figures has tinkers Um, i think yeah i think you're right i think that's where they are uh i i will say that like as the thing moves around um it distorts the space in the room Mm -hmm. in a way that i found difficult to keep track of but uh yeah i I think that at this point that's where she is yeah i think the text tries really hard to explain that distortion to us but it is very it is by its very nature difficult to keep track of yeah especially when for the most of this chapter it's happening our protagonist and our point of view character is like passing in and out of consciousness right which which makes it even more difficult yeah um yeah there was one particular thing it it reminded me of like a, a thing that i had done in in do the right thing recently where I wrote something that was meant to be metaphor and, and everyone who read it took it literally. But I was I, I was thinking about the fact that the shard is described as planet size. And I'm like, OK, so is she literally saying that it's like like 20,000 miles across and she's just looking at it from a great distance? Or is it is it just really big and looming and close? And maybe it's maybe it's like 100 meters across or something. But yeah. it's but it's impossible to gauge, really, because how the hell would you gauge something that's four dimensional and right. But, but like that, that's the thing is it doesn't, doesn't really matter, but um, it did kind of hang me up for a second as like, okay, is it, is it literally planet size or is she just trying to convey the sense of its vastness? Yeah. And I think that that gets down to just a fundamental idea in writing of how you convey the way people normally think yeah. versus the literal of what's going on because I, I completely agree that in my head, whenever someone says something planet sized, they're probably just using metaphor. They're probably just like, like very often, very rarely in life is someone going to say that thing's planet sized and actually be talking about a thing that is the size of a planet. Um, True. It's just not, it's just not something we experience very often. So it, it has, it, it has had a, a separate meaning of just, that's really fucking big has, has become attached to this phrase. And I think it is kind of a balance between using that and using that because you want your characters to talk and think naturally like real human beings do, but also wanting to convey that information. I think this is an instance in which you're absolutely right. Doesn't really matter. Yeah. The, 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 the conveyance here is that's really fucking big. Yeah. But, um, I, I do like the idea of it. Like, I think if anyone is going to describe something planet sized and mean the literal definition of it, I think it's going to be Victoria. So I would not be surprised if Victoria just was literally like, that's a whole planet right there. Yeah. Right. It's not, not like she can measure it anyway. Right. Like she, sure. she literally can't possibly know how big it is, but yeah. right. I mean, yeah, yeah she probably just, it's, re- it's really big, Matt. Yeah. It's just really big. I get it. <laughs> So at, at this point, it pulls out several of the tinkerings that it's been working on. Two of them go after Victoria. Uh, first, a mess of tendrils that she escapes, and then a burning talon that basically destroys her arms and uh, fatally maims her, and then she dies. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's no, it. No, Rip. I mean she's she's saved by a tattletale shooting the machinery. Thanks, tattletale. I love how her first thought in that is, "Oh, great! Now she's going to lord it over me." Yeah. 
which yeah definitely definitely that's gonna happen um what i really like about this is victoria as you said is very very badly hurt here like she is throughout the rest of these two chapters she is literally dying we are watching her die she's getting colder she her her body and brain functions are slowly shutting down she is dying but here when it happens we're in her point of view and so we almost don't understand yeah the full extent of the injury from her point of view because she can't see and she's not really interested in paying attention also she's in so much pain that she's not like focused on oh wow here's the extent of my injuries it's really bad but but wild bow brings sveta to her almost immediately to reinforce and to explain to us just how bad this is because sveta looks up and sees the same image that victoria just saw of this this quote-unquote planet-sized being of uh, that it's it basically just it's hopeless there's no way we can get around this thing it can be everywhere it will move it will counter us we cannot get through it but then she looks at victoria and the despair she has on her face looking at victoria is worse than the despair of oh shit we're doomed look how many limbs that thing has and that is such a perfect way to communicate oh yeah um victoria is real real bad yeah real bad shape yeah it's really interesting that she never really looks down at herself and is like because she's this is victoria she's she's always given us eight paragraphs of description of every injury she's ever gotten (laughs) with a full like medical diagnostic and how she was going to treat it and and in this one she's hit and it's like we can kind of infer that probably both of her arms are just like incinerated or maybe it's just one of them she's probably burned her torso in yeah. some way, like she's definitely in shock immediately. Like she's well, immediately she had, in shock. That that's the that's the most clear thing, actually. Yeah, I mean, she had that buckler thing, and it literally melted against her skin, yeah, right? Like, right. It, it, ugh, ugh. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, so so we're forced to kind of Victoria is not addressing this at all, so we're forced to th- see it through Sveta. And over and over again throughout this chapter, we do have Sveta talking to her in this "Oh fuck, you're dead" kind of voice, right? Yeah. Like, why why did you go ahead? Yeah. Why did you do that? And then like this very goodbye focused, you did that. You followed through, gave us the opening we needed. And then Sveta is calling her sweetie, which is something I don't think she's ever said to Victoria before. Like we talked last chapter how Sveta was saying sweetie and honey to Kenzie a lot. Um, and and I mean, maybe this is maybe this is Kenzie. I don't think so, though. But it seemed like it seemed like she's talking to Victoria. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's just like. Like she's looking at her and she's like, fuck, (laughs) like you're, you're dead. You're you're dead. Um, and it's, it's the beginning of this all is lost moment that a lot of this chapter and the entirety of the next chapter goes through where like Victoria is out of the fight now. She's just lying down and she's observing via her eyes and ears what's going on and, and, and the people losing. And it's kind of like, you know, in Saving Private Ryan where they do the, sh- the shell shock noise when like a bomb goes off. Right. And like it's just, in my head, it's just like that for for a lot of this chapter where it's just like like people are just fighting desperately. And maybe we switch into slow motion as like they get tossed across the room or hit by something or it's just. Yeah, it's just I like bad. that. It's just all bad. And she's completely out of it. She's not right. participating. She's not an active part of it anymore. Even before she's injured, her situation, well, awareness is pretty much garbage. Like she's just yeah. kind of look, she's kind of frantically looking around and we'll get a snippet of like 
Swan Song was or, uh, uh, damsel dodged and and was was cradling one of her arms or whatever. But it's it's like a it's like a snapshot, and then her attention goes to something else, and then that gets even worse after she's injured as she's literally yeah. passing in and out of consciousness. And we're almost literally getting snapshots of things that are happening around her with sure, yeah. with unknown spaces of time between them. Um, but um, yeah, so. And actually, that's a good thing to mention at this point, because basically at this point, um, the podcast will shift <laughs> as as we just as a lot of what we're saying is just like the snapshots rather than yeah. the surrounding context. I mean, I had a lot of trouble, Matt. I, I said this to you as we were prepping the last couple of days, but I had a lot of trouble doing our normal process on yeah. these two chapters because I just think they're they're different in in how they're paced and how they're laid out and how things kind of compound on each other like normally it's like event here's something i want to say about it event here's something i want to say about it but this time it was like five different events and actually i want to talk about all them at the same time um because they all kind of relate to each other in a weird way and it just it was really challenging it's it's not that it's not well written i think it's fantastically well written it's just different it's just like we're, we're not we're not used to seeing our character in this kind of situation and it changes the structure of the chapter and that itself conveys how poorly she's doing yeah, she, she's yeah. been in bad situations before in the course of this book. She's been injured. You know, she had her hand flayed in, in a melee and she didn't really lose her um, her Victorianness, Right. Yeah. Um, I think her narration may have shifted a bit. She became a lot more like goal oriented when she was in the prison because she knew Amy was there. She was trying to mm-hmm. keep her mind like within certain tracks. Sure. Um, but this is a totally different thing. This is the worst. This is the worst off she's been. Yeah, she's dying. Yeah. Um, so speaking of little snippets of things, uh, chicken little called out a warning from about a bombardment from above. Heh. <laughs> it's very, it's very cheeky. Wild bow. It's great. very good. It's, it's very good. Um, did he say the sky is falling? <laughs> did chicken little say the sky is falling? Now that would be two on the nose. Yes, it would. Um, so then cradle, uh, nails rain with a piece of rubble caving him in, <laughs> which is, it's a horrible, a horrible oh, descriptor for a human body. Yeah, it is. Uh, of course, this happens because Rain is protecting two of the kids with his body. Yeah, so I, I guess I want to talk. I want to talk a little bit about stakes here, um, just for a bit, because like we're kind of watching all these beloved characters get injured to the extreme, right? Victoria is dying. You don't describe a character as being caved in if they're just doing fine, yeah. right? And but we we in the back of our minds, we know we're in a dream room and you're kind of you're kind of in, in the, the thing where it's OK. None of this is permanent. No, if, if we get out of the room, it'll be OK. But you also fully recognize and understand the the idea that if they die here, that's probably it. Right. Right. So like it, it's it's a battle of stakes where like you're like I am less devastated about seeing rain get caved in than I would be if this was happening outside the dream room. But also I'm still like, Oh fuck, Oh fuck, Oh fuck, Oh fuck, Oh fuck. You know what this is? This is two of our characters have gone below zero hit points (laughs) There you go. and they've got to make their constitution saves or they're going to bleed out and die. Yeah. It seems like rain has failed at least one of his by the end of the chapter or by the end of the next chapter. Mm -hmm. Um, Victoria is definitely on her way out if she can't get to a cleric soon. That, that that's the level of tension we're at. Yeah, Amy, for sure. Amy. Oh, oh God. Amy. I didn't. I didn't mean it. You said a cleric, Matt. No. Uh, no. Yeah, and and I, look, we're gonna have a whole lot to say about Cradle. Um, I, I don't want to. I this is one of those things where like, 
I was so furious at Cradle here. I was like, fuck this guy. I hate him. I hate him forever. And I was so happy when Victoria just says, no, get him. But I really want to talk about him in detail at his end. Yeah. Because this is this is part this is a big part of why Cradle gets to die here. What he did in this moment that he saw an opening and pushed pushed some rubble on people that weren't even fighting against him. I like how you're assuming that just because he died in the dream, he actually died in the real world. Matt, uh-huh. he he did. He's dead. Okay. All he's right. in a coma. He's in a stupid coma forever in the middle of the wilderness, and he's going to get eaten by a, a dimensional dinosaur. Sounds good. Yeah, man, I hope there's dinosaurs on the prison world. That'd be tight. Uh, six. <laughs> okay, so as the team, as the team is stealth, stealth dino rider spinoff. Totally. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> that's where the rulons came from oh god Deep pull. uh so as the team reassembles closer to the exit much the worse for wear Graspo reveals an even more handsome piece of handiwork victoria concludes the only way out is to take out cradle you're really enjoying yourself here in your scripts today yeah that was that was that was just nuts that was just way too much a, a handsome piece of handiwork that's that's too, too far i agree yeah so i mean like I think one of the weird things that happened to me in this moment um, is, of course, Victoria says points a cradle and says, yeah, him. And you're like, fuck, yeah, because he just pushed. He just hurt rain and we love rain. Um, But it got me thinking, like. After this whole thing's done, Victoria is going to blame herself for that, right? She's going to be like, well, it's my fault. I told them to kill cradle. So, look, I've done it. I've killed another person. Right. Yeah. Like, that's just a very Victoria thing to do, I think. Um. Interesting. I just figured that everybody hates Cradle so much at this point that they're just going to be like, good. Yeah, I know they for sure. But it's let's we're talking about Victoria Dallin here. Uh Yeah, she's definitely going to to be upset with herself or or momentarily questioning herself. Right. I think Um, so. Like, let's remember, we have a Victoria who is wrestling with this this shard influence, this door that has been opened between them. And she's kind of probably more than ever confused about who she is and and what she is and what's going on and now once again she's just like oh i just casually ordered someone's death um i don't know i just i just see i see victoria over analyzing that and diving deep into that as where, where i was just like yeah totally take them out necessary do it go um, yeah i can see some consequences coming isn't it sveta who actually topples the shelving thing onto him yes but and, again and, victoria right but sveta is the one who has an even bigger issue about killing people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, With love lost's help importantly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, they all have a hand in it obviously, but um, I just think, yeah, I, I agree with you that there's going to be fallout um, in some form, right? It could be the followers. They have a conversation where they're like, you know, I feel like I should feel bad about this, but I don't. Um, <laughs> it, could, it could be that. Yeah. But I do definitely think we're going to wrap back around to this. Yeah, I think so. All right. 16.10. Victoria continues rapidly dying as the final hug begins. Uh, for those of you at home, Matt has attached a webcomic to the script, which is really great for all of you because you can definitely see that. Yeah, yeah. There's, it's, there's definitely a webcomic in my script. It's the webcomic Hugbot by pbfcomics.com. Go check <laughs> sure. that out. Sure. Uh, Victoria reflects on how things have come full circle. And basically this whole chapter is a chapter of everything coming full circle with our very internal and ruminative protagonist laying it all out for us. 
Uh, for one thing, she's horribly burned and she's cognizant of the acid in her throat. And of course, uh, that reminds us of, of the, the, the crawler situation, although crawler spit wasn't acid, Victoria. It was some kind of nanotechnological enzyme, but whatever. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're here to make these important <laughs> distinctions between these items. Matt. It won't be full circle <laughs> until it's a nanotechnological enzyme. <laughs> Um, I think, I think, as you said, the, the, the protagonist, our protagonist is laying out kind of the main idea, the theme of this chapter. And I've been critical in the past of, of, of our book when it just like literally states its themes like this. Uh, I think it works here. And, and, and I think why it works here is an important thing because I think Victoria is speaking very literally when she's talking about it coming full circle here, because she's just like, it's like crawler again, here it is. Cuts come full full shitty circle and I'm back here again dying because this evil monster sprayed some goop on me. Um, but what that does, I think, is demonstrate is show us that this entire chapter is about things coming full circle. So now we've seen our protagonists explain it explicitly with one thing. And now we've kind of uh, we've kind of have it in our mind to be paying attention to this idea of a theme and then we can start to see it with all our other characters we can start to see it with damsel we can see it especially with tattletale with cradle with candy um we start to see it in all these other places and so by explicitly stating it at the beginning in relation to one thing it primes us to see it other places and that is where i am totally cool with explicit statements of meaning like this and i liked it a lot yeah yeah, I agree. I think that that serves a great function because we begin and end this chapter with this idea of um, touching back into the into the deep past um, and and coming to a resolution. And yeah, that that is a through line here. Absolutely mm-hmm. cool. Mm-hmm. So um, Sveta physically lifts and carries Victoria away from Hugbot's violent attacks, causing her to pass out. Uh, she passes in and out of consciousness uh, over the over the rest of the chapter, basically, after this it's like point. You, it's like you are intentionally trying to avoid saying Mr. Hugs, I'm, and it's really upsetting I'm, me. I'm going to keep doing it. I, I love I love the added dimension of of this chapter being told, as we talked about before, from a person on the verge or or successfully passing out constantly, right? Like she passes out, she wakes up, minutes have gone by, we're not even sure how much, and it adds to the broken segmented feeling of this chapter like we talked about um w- our character is not fighting anymore they're not seeing the fight they see parts of it they're hearing it they see limbs slap down and slam down and they hear people yell but we're not seeing any of it um but the battle the battle of this chapter the real conflict of this chapter is our protagonist with herself she's struggling to keep her body going she's struggling to focus to tune her mind towards problem solving and away from all these inclusive thoughts and so it's it's just entire internal conflict while this war is raging on around her. Yeah, right. That that's very interesting. It's almost like a hyper version of Victoria's normal frame of mind, where yeah, she's basically every every fight is like half the fight and half Victoria doing mental gymnastics to try to keep herself uh, uh, in the fight. Yeah. Um. And except here, it's again, it's it's the exaggerated version of that where she's so fucked up in every way that she is actually just failing to keep, keep tabs on the fight. And she certainly can't participate, right? She can't do anything yeah. except she makes maybe two, you know, tactical calls that actually win the fight. Um, yeah. but, uh, yeah. But I mean, when 50% of every fight is punching and 50% of every fight is thinking and you take the punching away, all you have left is her diving into her own brain True. and yeah. struggling with, with everything that's happening to her. Yeah, absolutely. 
So yeah, Victoria's narration is peppered with moments of empathy born of the triggered dreams that she just witnessed. She sees Damsel try to hide her injury and she thinks, you don't have to hide that you're hurt, Damsel. Oh. Yeah. I love I, I love this because I, there's this moment where she says, I think I understand Ashley a lot. She's think thinking, giving the chance we'd get rid of her and get Swan Song back. And my immediate reaction to that was, fuck, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I like how Victoria here says, I wasn't sure, so sure we would, but it didn't matter because she was convinced, um, which is an interesting, interesting admission there that um, if given the option we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't go that far. Um, we value the existence of someone else, even if we don't like them very much enough to not rip that away from them just to get our friend back. Uh-huh. Well, <laughs> rephrasing is I wasn't so sure we would, <laughs> which, which to me is a bit more of a, I, we would seriously consider the possibility of pushing damsel into a dimensional vortex if it meant <laughs> <laughs> if it meant getting Swan Song back. Yeah, I mean, there is a moment at the end of this chapter, right, where she sees Swan Song, and I just get right, and I just yeah. want to be Victoria go, bunk. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Oh, hey. Uh, so, yeah, wow. Dang. Did that happen? Yeah. Well, I guess we're stuck here now. All right, let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So Victoria is also think that's a really tragic moment, though. Like, yeah, she's a person that she wants to be needed so badly and she just can't like I, damsel. Like I've given damsel a lot of hard shit these past few chapters. But this is just makes me sad because she's like so she it's like she's the person that like really wants to be invited to the cool kids club, right. but will never go up and ask directly. Um, yeah, she'll just stand there and try to look as impressive and badass as possible and hope that they'll they'll like respect her um it just it just makes me sad it really makes me sad yeah i mean we know that we know that swan song thought that victoria was like cool and admirable Mm -hmm. uh plus or minus some degree of non-platonic subtext yeah um and and like we can kind of assume that damsel also thinks victoria is really cool and like uh, you know she literally had the thought like is is she how i would be if i had had a, a better road in life instead of the shit show that i had um basically seeing victoria as like the prototype of what she would want to be right sure um and and so we can kind of assume damsel sees her the same way and so to see victoria seeing her weakness in this moment it's like someone who you kind of idolize in in a sense kind of put on a pedestal seeing your weakness uh you can see why she would want to hide it like i I don't know it helps me to remember that while they're not the same person Um, they probably do have a lot of the same thoughts about the same things. Sure. And so that makes sense. So what, um, do, do, so we've known through earlier chapters in this section that Swan Song is in damsel there somewhere. Like we've seen hints of it. Is that the case in this room now, or is this separated out enough to where this version of damsel is just the damsel version, not with the shardy influence of past, swan songs in there I have, past ashley's in there i have no idea my guess <laughs> okay. would be that she has whatever memories she got from dreams prior to this point and then if somehow they're going to fall asleep in this dream dimension which doesn't quite make sense i i have no idea it's getting really abstract yes that that, that, was, that was a tough question yeah. i'm sorry no it's, it's 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 kind of fun to think about but i don't know yeah um, yeah, so Victoria is also trying her hand at comedy a lot this chapter. Um, <laughs> being in, in shock on the verge of death, I guess, does that. 
Yeah, brings out the comedian. Yeah, the noise set my nerves on edge. Good thing I have less nerves than I had when I entered this fucking place. I but smiled no. at the dark thought. <laughs> the fact that she, so like, and that's the thing she's we're going to mention at her own later is like she's laughing more, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting. Um, yeah, we'll talk well, about that in a minute though. Her, her brain is dying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Victoria also continues slipping in using civilian names in front of the uh, mastermind villain Tattletale. Yeah, I love that. I didn't catch it on my first read, but when I was going back through this moment where she's she's joking, she's kind of telling another joke where she's like, she, Tattletale says, well, if you kill Cradle, we might get kicked out of the dream. And she's like, good, fucking hate this dream. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how Rain does this every night. Yeah. And then Sveta, in just the perfect Sveta moment, just kind of like whispers, precipice <laughs> it's just yeah. a really great moment where like she doesn't really want to contradict her because she's dying she doesn't want to like be like now victoria you have to be sure to not use people oh wait you're dying right yeah but she also can't let it go i guess either. it's i guess it, we already did it right yeah but she, it, yeah. like you said uh kind of the hall monitor quality yeah. of Sveta. yeah um and then later she says she starts to say tristan um, yeah uh yeah not that it would be that hard to figure out who Tristan and Byron are. If sure. You were, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I feel like I feel like Lisa knows all of their names I, and probably I'm, all of their parents' names and everyone they've ever dated. And where they live, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah so Victoria, uh, so yeah, I love this description of the bit where her nervous system just kind of goes haywire, making her feel like her arm is being crushed. Like she's like, Tristan, could you get off my arm? And he's like, Mm -hmm. I'm not anywhere near your arm. And it's just, it's literally just like her body, her nervous system. I I don't know how else to say it, freaking out and and sending her signals that make no sense. It's just firing crazily because it doesn't know what to do. Yeah. Um, And I wonder like, I wonder what goes into researching stuff like this. Cause I've never had myself burned so badly that I'm dying. Um, I wonder if like you just Google what happens when your arm really badly burned. Does it feel like, cause she describes it as feeling like it's on the verge of breaking, right? Her nerves yeah. are firing and, and probably her muscles are trying to tense so much that like, it's all like everything's on the verge of snapping, but it just won't do it. It's just like in that state constantly. Yeah. And that seems like something, I mean, I think authors do a lot of research sometimes and I'm wondering if that was just, I think this is going to be the way it is or actual research would to it i don't know just interesting it, it seemed it seemed research to me like it comported with my understanding of like what happens when your body undergoes so much damage that it doesn't know what to map it onto it's just like warning this limb is either gone or <laughs> just something's really wrong here um and you've never experienced this before so i don't know how to send you that sensation so here's mm-hmm. some garbage yeah um mm-hmm. here's uh, here have some pain yeah have some pain yeah right deal with this please <laughs> um and and like just a funny moment i mean it, it's funny it's also a bit moving uh where he she looks up at, at tristan and, and thinks he looked like such a superhero in that moment square jaw intense a giddy and delirious part of me wanted to kiss him hug him embrace that as much as the handsomeness of him which would probably traumatize him on a few levels it scared me that my thoughts were so out there so far out of bounds when I'd prized and fought so fucking hard to establish my bounds. Yeah. I mean, it seems like we're seeing a Victoria that like, we're just like the gate around her mind is gone. Right. Yeah. And she's just letting her mind do the things that all of our minds do, which is just sometimes think random shit that we're yeah. like, huh, where did that come from? <laughs> yeah. Like, like this kind of goofy, like, it was like, yeah, 
look, man, I respect him. I just want to make out with with that superhero over there. Um, but Victoria, Victoria is such a controlled and careful and thoughtful, protected person because she has had to do this, right? She's had to put that fence around her brain and make sure it doesn't go down certain holes. And she's had to do that for so long. And she's just, she's dying. So that's not happening anymore. And combine that with the shock. And we're just seeing like, as she says, like delirious moments of, of almost nonsense here where you're just like, Oh, well, okay, Victoria. Yeah. I like, I like a lot of what you just said there because there's the element where this isn't that crazy of a thought to have. No, no, not at all. It's just, it's just crazy for Victoria. Because she's yeah. so regimented and and has all these boundaries in, but you know, in, inside herself, um, and, and of course, yeah. The, the subsequent paragraph, like the second paragraph, where it says it scares her that she's having this thought, is just as important as the first, where she has the thought, because it's mm-hmm. it's indicating once again, even though she can't control her thoughts in this moment, she can still have that thought that says, uh, "I don't know where that. I don't like where these thoughts are going." These thoughts are not thoughts that I approve of as yeah. the as the the guardian of the of the thought uh whatever whatever <laughs> whatever metaphor. I was trying to connect it to the dream room somehow. She has she has her own thought place yeah. inside her brain. Inside yeah. her personal dream room. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. And you're not allowed to step outside your section, Victoria Brain, or else you get pummeled by Dream Warrior. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I did it for you. Thank you. It, was, it wasn't the best, but we got there. We 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 kind of we kind of got there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think everything we've been talking about these last few minutes though, the, you know, the jokes, the um the slipping with names, the the nerve damage firing, the the kind of goofy out of Victoria bound stuff is all building on this this Victoria is dying stuff, right? Like she's 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 losing it she's losing it in every way she's losing it physically she's losing it mentally she's dying she's getting cold and the coldness is not going away the numbness is not going away it's like it's like you're watching someone experience their death and it's kind of the most disturbing thing ever absolutely yeah we even get to the point when she really kind of faces that yeah uh, and, and and is is consciously aware of it mm-hmm. um yeah uh, so Victoria sends the able-bodied elements of the team to go assassinate Cradle while she stays with the kids in Tattletail and Rain, I guess. Yeah, and I, I like this because, like, Tristan and Sveta especially, along with the rest of them, are, like, aware that the, when they leave Victoria here, like, when they come back, if they come back, she might be dead already. Um, and and so it's, like, it's it's more than just... I'm going to go fight and leave you here. It's this could be the last time I see you yeah. <laughs> type of stuff. And so there's a lot of weight to this. And and Tristan, you know, to his credit is like, I don't want to be the person that leaves my friends behind and charges forward anymore. I was that person. I don't want to be that person anymore. Um, and I, I, God, I love him. I love him so much. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a great Tristan moment. Like mm-hmm. everyone kind of gets, not everyone, not literally everyone, but, but almost everyone gets this, this great moment of, because that that's the thing is that that is him reflecting on he who he used to be. Yeah. That is him coming full circle. That is him coming full circle, exactly, yeah. And it's 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 very very succinctly done, almost offhand, but it's it's beautiful. I, I mm-hmm. love it. Yeah. Um and 
so the, the cool thing that I like about it is ne- during the next part, we're about to have this super emotional conversation between a lot of characters. And and this the scene is set for us that while all this is happening, there's fighting going on in the background. There's limbs being slammed down. There's dust and debris being thrown up into the air. The the uh, Mr. Hugs is but at this point unleashed his as you call it, the final hug where it's just like like T2 liquid metal. That's <laughs> right. just like not only covering him and, and protecting his joints that were weak, but also like spilling out and exploding into like exploding hands. I just hit my mic, <laughs> but um, it's just like all the stuff is going on in the background of this emotional, impactful like conflict between these characters and, and drama between these characters. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I and, and that helps to set the tone, right? That, that's, yeah. that's a great point. Um, yeah, that's that's a cool thing. Like everything, everything that's happening, it's kind of easy to forget as we're talking about it. Like everything that's happening is embedded in this chaos yeah, of yeah. just stuff crashing and flying and people being injured right and left. Like there's so many horrible injuries. We don't even see them like damsels like missing a finger. Didn't see that happen. Yeah, yeah. So my personal my personal favorite is what I was going to say. <laughs> my personal favorite part of this chapter is the interaction where, you know, the heroes have run away to fight and Victoria starts out by thanking Tattletale for saving her by shooting the thing. And Tattletale is immediately hostile, angry that Victoria dove in head first and effectively got herself killed. Um, and then Victoria responds to this by asking if Tattletale has any insights into what's going on. And Tattletale just bites her head off. Oh yeah. And we're going to read an unusually long stretch here, I think, because I think I, I just love it. Um, you don't know anything about me, okay? Tattletale asked. You don't get any points if you end our relationship with some well-intentioned questions. You triggered because mommy and daddy didn't love you because you were normal, then proceeded to show you were the last person who ever deserved powers, maiming people and using your sister to dodge the consequences when you hit them a little too hard. Um, and then and then Kenzie and Colt kind of stand up for Victoria a little bit. Kenzie mm-hmm. tells her to stop. And then, and then it says, the silence was maybe the heaviest silence that I'd ever heard. Heavier than the times after my family had left during visiting hours. Heavier than the rooftop after Dean had died when I'd flown up there to cry on my own because I couldn't cry in front of his family and everyone else in the hospital. Heavier than the silence after I'd, fouled, after I'd been fouled in basketball in the before and after of my own pain cry. Heavy because the hands had made an all-out attack on the other group. Ten hands altogether. And then they'd stopped. God, that's just good shit right there. Well, it's amazing to me because like what what Tattletale has just said to Victoria is like a a attack right to the gut, right to the most sensitive part of her issue. And she she goes even worse after this and says that it's your fault. Basically, it's your fault that you were raped, which is Tattletale, like awful. Like the worst fucking thing she's ever said to anyone. Yeah. Ever. And she knows um, that, right? Like she's had this saved oh, yeah. up as like her power told her, hey, yeah. this is some good shit. This will fuck her up. But she she hasn't said it because right. she doesn't really do that anymore. But here she's so compromised that yeah. it comes out. And I want to talk about that for a long time. Yeah. Um, but but the, the thing that struck, especially as you just read it, this silence was maybe the heaviest silence I ever heard. And you think like it's a silence between what the terrible thing that Tattletail just said to you. But Victoria's entire focus here 
is the silence created by the fact that the fighting stopped, that all her friends might be dead now because the thing wasn't fighting them anymore. And so it's like it's almost as if Tattletale's barbs just are glancing off her, right? Like there are moments in this thing where like she she like has to focus on her breathing, but we don't see Victoria go into like like she doesn't seem to get mad here. Like she's dying and she's kind of like on the verge of passing out for the final time. Um, And so her focus here is entirely on the fight that's going on, even as Tattletail like hits her with the, the most powerful, cruel thing she's got. Yeah, I mean, she says at some point in here, she says, I don't need your words to get me there, Tattletale. Yeah. And I think that's that that is exactly what you're saying. Like, she's not really being pushed into the dark place by Tattletale because I think that she has been she she has gotten used to the dark place at this point. Like, Mm -hmm. like ever since Amy touched her a couple arcs ago, she hasn't really ever left that frame of mind completely, I don't think. Yeah. Um, and and she's been grappling with all of these things and may, maybe I don't know if desensitized is the right word. I mean, it's still it's still upsetting to her to think about Amy, but she thinks about her in a way that I think she can she can handle. She can deal uh, to use Rain's. You yeah. Know, yeah. To use uh, Aaron's concept for rain. Sure. And but but still with a lot of anger as well as we'll see. Still. Uh, abs- absolutely. Yeah. Um, and. Yeah, I, I just I, I think it's I think you're exactly right to point out that this is not what we're not seeing. This is not written as Tattletale says this horrible thing and Victoria is just destroyed by it and she's sent reeling and, and she's like, no, that wasn't true, was it? It's she just kind of takes it right. She's just like mm-hmm. like you can almost see her like nodding to herself. Like, yeah, she she's not vehemently denying it to herself. And I don't think like obviously it's not true, right? Like, I mean, yes, Victoria feels as if it's true. Um, and that's how come Tattletale knows it and is knowing to use it here. But obviously the idea that you deserved what happened to you is absurd. But there's a part of Victoria who absolutely agrees with that sentiment that feels like she deserves what happened to her. Um, and it's a dark, terrible part of of a person that does that to yourself. But that's what people do to themselves. I mean, it, it, and it may literally be true that Victoria has harbored this suspicion, this feeling yeah. that, that like yeah. that, like I maybe on some level I did know that Amy had more than sisterly feelings for me and maybe i did leverage that to to get favors and and healing and and all the special privileges that that were part and parcel of having her as a as a sister and someone who i could basically twist around my finger um that's that's a realistic thing for her to have contemplated uh, over the two years in the hospital and and the time since and like she says about Damsel earlier in this section, it doesn't matter whether it's true or not because she believe she if she believes it to be true, then it becomes true, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, so let's talk about Tattletale for a bit because yeah. this is beyond the pale for for Lisa. This is the cruelest she's ever been to someone, and I'm not gonna sit here and like, um, you know apologize on her behalf or anything but i think it's important that we understand what's going on with lisa right now because i think she is in one of the worst places she's ever been in as well right um yeah like here's the things we know we know she's just relived her brother's suicide via this dream this 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 horrible event that's happened to her she just had to relive it worse she knows for a fact that everyone else just lived it too, right? Yeah. That that all these people, including the kids she takes care of, including Victoria, a person that she doesn't like, experience this too. 
We know that she views charging forward and throwing yourself at, at a problem, uh, you know, in the vein of what Taylor did is to her literally suicide. She views them, those two things as the same thing. And Victoria is lying here in front of her dying, having just done that exact thing, charging forward to fight the monster, um, doing something so stupid that in, in Lisa's idea, it's basically suicide. Um, she's, she's vulnerable. She's agitated. And also the idea that like, you know, we talked for a long time about Victoria's trigger as a thing that from the outside looks like, oh, that's nothing. And I think, I think if you were watching that event, especially with the way that the mall stuff like reframed it as just playing a video game, I think if you're just watching that event, not knowing all the shit that Victoria has gone through, I think that does seem relatively minor compared to, uh, oh, I don't know, um, being forced to kill someone because your dad said so, or having this man try to quote unquote save you, but really do these terrible, terrible things to you, or finding your brother having committed suicide in his room. Like comparatively from an external perspective, that doesn't look that bad. Right. And so I think that the anger, her anger towards Victoria is even heightened because of that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's part of it. I mean, there is a bit of venom in this idea where she's like, you you triggered because your mom and dad didn't love you because you were normal, which yeah. is I, I, it, it's a it's a wonderfully evil phrasing. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and really like, you know, thinking about the way her dream was like the, the most painful part of it for her was like her parents presence without engagement and then their disappointment. Yeah. And that's all stuff that like if you're not keyed in to understand what's salient about it, you could have just like not noticed. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like if you're just spectating. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And and so this I mean, I wanted to continue with this, though, because I think we've always had this understanding that Victoria doesn't like Tattletale. And we've always had this understanding of the of this idea that Lisa doesn't like Victoria very much. And I think we've understood the first one, right? Because it has to do with what happened to her with Crawler and and how she holds Lisa responsible for that. But also that she holds Lisa responsible for what happened in the, the bank and, and right. how that kind of pushing that Amy. kind of snowballed into yeah. everything that happened. Um, but the, the other side of the coin, we never really got. And I started thinking about this. I started thinking about. What do we know about Rex? What do we know about about Lisa's brother? Well, we know he was the popular kid in high school. We know that everyone liked him. Lisa describes him as the favorite child back in Warham when she's talking to Taylor about him. That kind of sounds a lot like Victoria, doesn't it? I mean, uh-huh. that kind of sounds like what Victoria's experience was in in high school, was she was the popular one. Everyone liked her. Um, she was the definitely amongst her parents in their own kind of way. She was the favorite between her and Amy. Certainly. Um, and, and so I, I definitely see this, this, this mindset where Lisa can transpose Victoria on her brother. And I think she has a lot of complex feelings about her brother. Like it's, it's, it's guilt, it's regret, it's anger. She's mad at him for what he did. Um, and, and she's mad at herself for not stopping it. And I, I think, you know, you start layering Victoria on top of this persona of this person and it just pisses her off. And Victoria is a person who's not dead and, and was using her power to do shitty things. And like, you start built this narrative around Victoria from Lisa's perspective. It's like, Oh yeah, I get, I get why she just fucking hates her now. Like I, I get like all this stuff's attached to this, this, this powerful connecting 
to Rex and and to this experience that she had with Rex. And and it's so messy and emotional that she of course she feels like worse than she ever has. And she lashes out worse than she ever has here. Of course she does. It's just a mess. Yeah, I, I like I like that a lot. I don't have a lot to add. I mean, I, I don't think I ever saw it that way, but I think that's a valid read, this idea that there's some projecting of of Rex's qualities onto onto Victoria for better and for worse, right? Like yeah, I think yeah. I think that's it. That's one thing that this book has actually played with a bit. This idea that love and hate are um right next to each other. They're sure, they're sure. different sides of the same coin. Like like the 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 idea the 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 idea of Amy's betrayal is made so much worse by the fact that this was a person that Victoria loved so much and cherished so much. Yeah. And and likewise, you know, um this idea that see I don't even know if I would agree to, in in saying that that Tattletale hates Victoria. I think there's there may be like if you're going to make the Rex comparison, it's possible that she she wants to she wants to like her like, like she sees so much in Victoria that is that is admirable that she wants to like that reminds her of what she likes about her brother what she liked about her brother and then that's transformed by Victoria's behavior into the negative side of that yeah um that's yeah I like that that's that's fun yeah I mean because because if, if she sees Rex and Victoria and then Victoria is lying here dying it's literally Fuck, I did it again. Yeah. I, I, I failed again. I just, I did it with Skitter. I did it with my brother. And here it is again. One more time. I can't stop this. And also, we have to understand that Chicken Little, her, her ward that she promised above all else is here. And they are all basically now resigned to the fact that we're all probably going to die here. So she's already pissed off because of that. I mean, the first thing she, Lisa says when, when they enter the dream room is you're all idiots. Because it's like, look, we're here. We weren't supposed to be here, but we're here. Um awesome and chicken little was not supposed to be in this room that is not supposed to be the way this went down and now they're here and he might die and she's pissed off she's pissed off at victoria she's pissed off because of victoria she's pissed off because she there's parts of victoria she likes and she just saw victoria once again throw her life away or in her mind Uh in a in a suicidal type attack and yeah it's like this complex like mess of emotion and i love that it's complicated it's not simple we can't just be like oh well she sees victoria she sees Rex and Victoria or she sees uh, Victoria and herself or, you know, like yeah. it, it's, it's all of that. It's all of that. I think she does see some of herself in Amy. I think she does, does see some of Rex and Amy um, and, and herself in Victoria. Like, I think it's all of that at the same time. I think that's what, that's what Lisa is doing. And that's why this relationship is so fraught and complex because it's positive emotions. It's negative emotions. It's all of it together. Yeah. This is some good shit, Scott. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think that that this is what you get when you spend the time to to realize all of the richness of these characters and their interactions and their depth and their feelings about each other is absolutely you can you can say stuff like this. Yeah. And even if the author didn't necessarily put that in and, and say as he was writing, like the reason Tattletale feels this way is that there's this connection with Rex. I think that at this point, there's enough enough depth that we can just kind of say, yeah, I think that's there, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's I love that. That was good, good conversation about that. So basically, as things you know, after this silence, after this this heavy silence, Victoria then goes through a process of realizing that she has to reach some kind of peace with things, 
Knowing she'll probably never see her parents again, she's able to release her hold on her anger, release some of that tension that she's been holding um, over their quote-unquote betrayal of her. Uh, she even realizes that she could extend Amy a measure of understanding. Maybe. I could forgive her, probably. Find that internal compromise. Forgive her for myself, at the very least. But like hell was I ever going to do that. Like hell was I going to forgive her for anything, even my own peace of mind. Like fucking hell was I going to compromise. Understand? Yes, but only as a defensive measure. Like I tried to understand this many-handed fucker. Fuck no. Hell no. Fuck. If there was a chance she could find out how I'd felt about her in the end, and powers meant there was always a chance, I wanted the answer to be bitter and hurtful, because she'd remain too much of a coward to own up to it in reality and totality. Because fuck her. <laughs> uh, so, like, so it may be funny for people to hear me say this after I've been like the white knight of forgiveness and the healing power of forgiveness throughout the course of this show. But this was just great. This is just beautiful, you know? I I think yes, I think I still I still want Victoria to a place where she forgives Amy, not for Amy, but for herself. And and to the point where like I don't even think I want Victoria to like walk up to Amy and say I forgive you. I think just doing that internally, like to make coming to that realization within herself is important, but totally with you, man. This is great. <laughs> this is and and it, the thing that I love about it is the writing it 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 builds right like like the way it's like maybe i could forgive her probably find that internal compromise forgive her for myself at least and then it like uh-huh. it, it switches and the sentences get a little shorter and so like that that it's like it builds in momentum like we see it kind of going down as she's dying and then but like hell i was ever going to do that yeah. and then we start going up and it, it like the pace picks up and the energy picks up and it's like she's like it, she's metaphorically like getting back up on her feet in this moment now she's she's summoning her strength and and coming back from the brink um and i think that's a really powerful moment and i want to really dive into this idea this this idea of her she's she's got this anger and she's holding on to this anger because i think this relates to cradle in an interesting way and maybe we should wait till we talk about cradle to really get into that but i just I'm going to say it, Matt. Let's put a pin in this and come back to it when we talk about Cradle. Yeah, sure. I mean, I um, I had an interesting reaction to, to, to this bit, I, I felt, because um, like I said, I love I love the idea of forgiveness as a way of healing people. But and I wouldn't recommend that what Victoria has done here is a necessarily a healthy psychotherapeutic technique to to apply in one's own life. But it is interesting because it is it is a, a way of like owning her anger yeah rather sure. th- rather than the, than the anger continuing to control her she she sees it she sees that she probably could discard it and she would be fine it, it, it it's within her grasp to discard it mm-hmm. but she chooses instead to own it and say i don't need this this isn't me but i want it and that's very different from being beholden to it right yeah, that's I would, a good point. I would still argue it's better to forgive and then you just don't have that anymore. It's just you can just move on. But I, I do see this as a kind of resituation of her attitude with respect to her anger. And I like yeah. it. I mean, I think I think this the the final line she says really lines up to that. My parting thoughts on the subject as I labored to breathe were simply that I could make peace with my lack of peace on the subject. Exactly. And I think that's very poetic in that. that like, yeah, it's like. I am okay. I'm okay with this. I'm okay with not resolving this. 
um, I'm okay with going with dying without this being resolved. And I think that's the distinct, that's the distincting and defining difference between the anger that Cradle is holding on to and the anger that Victoria is holding on to. But more on that later. Yes. So there's a perfectly placed moment here uh, of, of levity as Chicken Little calls the creature Mr. Hugs. Yeah. Victoria laughs. And, and, and that's one thing where I was like, how often does Victoria really laugh in this story? Uh, anyway, I pull up this, this small scene because um, it's a small scene between this this moment of Victoria kind of internally uh, ruminating and then the subsequent positive thing that happens. And I feel like it's easy, to, you know, especially in this in this format of the show, it's easy to skip over these tiny little interstitial moments. But you really need these moments like Chicken Little making a little a little a little joke, everyone responding to it. You really need those to, to form kind of the, the connective tissue that make the tonal shifts between different scenes actually work. I think you're absolutely right. And I, I love this. And I love that is almost Chicken Little's role in this story. Uh multiple times and I, I really appreciate it i like that he does that i like that he is he that is that is what he does here um and i i agree that victoria doesn't laugh very often but taylor didn't laugh very often do any of the wild book protagonists <laughs> laugh do they do that um any well ever uh i'm gonna say yes no go on i, I don't know no, don't go on don't go on <laughs> uh so candy gives saddletail a reality check much like much like uh, Victoria, uh, much like Tattletale gave Victoria a reality check, except not really because it's the opposite. Because what she says is how much good Tattletale's done for the heartbroken, how much she's positively influenced their lives, and then she makes sure that Kenzie, Chicken, and Darlene also know that they are all loved as well. Oh my God, Matt! How like so? I guess we have to say we didn't mention this explicitly, but we have to say that the idea behind what Tattletale said to, um to victoria was i'm gonna say this means stuff to you to keep you alive to keep you conscious to channel your rage in a certain way to keep you conscious right that's Uh kind of what victoria's i don't need your words hints at right um we don't know that for sure and and it doesn't mean that she didn't mean it i think she did I, i fully think lisa meant that stuff but the reason why she's throwing this at them now is for that but i when you said that she get candy gives tattletale a reality check i do think she's doing the same thing but she's doing it and like, this is what these people need. Lisa uh-huh. thinks this is what Victoria needs in this final moment, arguably. I don't know if she does, but um, Candy looks at all her people she cares about and like, this is what they need at the end. And that's it's it's beautiful. Um, where did Candy come from? Matt? <laughs> like I she just really snuck up on me, like between the def- the the impassioned defense of Victoria uh, earlier in the arc and and this I I love her so much. It's so it's so sweet what she says here. I mean, what she says to to Darlene at the end, I think we beat him. We made some of the coolest friends. We figured out how to like each other again after he turned us all against each other. We had family and homes and puppy piles and swimming and shopping and crushes and schools, terminally boring catch up classes. Everything he tried to take away from us, we got back in spades. Yeah. And it's it's beautiful yeah it's <laughs> yeah it's so sad right i mean it's yeah. it's hard it's it's bittersweet right yeah i mean it's it's sad I, like i don't want any of these characters to die obviously that's tragic and terrible but it, it's it's just beautiful and like look we're here at the end at, at what seems like it's going to be the end of our lives and let's take a minute and and be thankful for the things that we had for the things that we achieved for the the the, the, the what 
the people around us did for us, what Tattletale did for us, what we did for each other, what what and then she says to Kenzie that she's like the coolest person she knows yeah. and she would be with her forever if she could and it's just oh my god yeah oh right it is is so destroying when when she's like uh, I I, I want to be around you until you're until you're sick of me and and Kenzie just says that's not possible <laughs> and and like but she, <gasps> yeah yeah it's so oh my so god good. it's so beautiful and like and it, like I feel like in the back of your head you, the reader, is probably like, I mean, they're not all going to die, <laughs> right? They're not all going to die. But, but I don't think it even matters in that moment. Yeah. I think that it's still just as beautiful because they're coming full circle. They're finding peace. And yeah. it, it it literally doesn't matter to me whether that peace is is a final peace just before they die or just like, or just like yeah, this is great. These characters have, have found this peace. They, they have... They have come full circle. They have looked over their lives and they have weighed everything and they have said, you know what? I'm okay with this. Mm-hmm. Except maybe Tattletail. I don't know if she's doing too well. But Yeah, I, I, that is a good point that out of anyone that might die in this moment, I think Tattletail is the one that has found the, the least amount of peace. If, if, um, if anything, she's like, all right, now I'm going to die and Chicken's going to die with me and I'm going to have failed to save him because I got him into this too. So yeah, I think she's probably doing the worst of all and and i don't really see any evidence that like damsel is you know reaching any fantastic conclusions um but yeah no that would be a bit a bit sort of stretching it if like every single character had a eight minute monologue about how their life was doing great now um yeah but, but i mean i think it shows the struggle that lisa is, is still having and how uh, some of these other characters are further along in their journey yeah. than she is yeah true true so um yeah so so now now they hear finally after this heartfelt moment that one of the others is is alive and victoria then sends the kids and tattletail to head that way basically leaving her and rain just stranded yeah yeah willing to basically give up on themselves but what i love about this is in this moment victoria says i didn't have it in me to stand let alone fight no flight no powers no connection to the shard just me and then she hears someone still alive and what does she do the second she hears someone still alive she sits up she has no powers she has no flight she's dying she's barely hanging on it's just victoria and victoria finds a way to sit up and victoria finds a way to to call attention to everyone and to order them around and and she gets someone to help her stand up this is it's just victoria it's not parahumans it's not shard it's not powers this is just the will and determination of victoria dallin here and it is remarkable yeah yeah no it's it's awesome yeah the how she she's still the leader right she's she's mm-hmm. still making the the decisions and making the hard decisions making the self-sacrificing decisions yeah. even at this point yeah this idea this idea it's it's a it's a buffy the vampire slayer idea which you know if you'd watch the uh-huh. show but this idea of take away everything le- everything else and what is left, just me. But you are powerful. You are amazing. And you are going to find a way to, to gather the strength to do what you need to do here, which is save them all, which is notice, which is f- like see the connection and finally understand what's going on. Yeah. Awesome. So Cradle um, blocks the uh, Tattletail and the kids from reaching the others which conveniently stops the attacks from Hugbot. Uh, and Colt tries to talk him down. 
As they fight, Victoria unlocks the puzzle. The monster will attack anybody who remains in their own room. And I want to talk about that with you a lot. (laughs) I want to dive into this a lot. This idea of so what we have is we have 15 people in this room and there were barriers between there were there were divisions between all of them. And we've ripped those barriers out. We've we've combined these people in a way in which the barriers are no longer there. And yet this monster is here trying to stop you like it almost it, it wants to stop you from community from collaboration from walking into someone and understanding someone stop you from empathy stop you from understanding stop you from seeing from someone else's point of view right i think metaphorically that's this beautiful that that as long as you stay still stay in your place don't move don't change don't understand don't team up don't come together as a people it's going to leave you alone but as soon as you start trying to do that then it attacks you then it wants to destroy you 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 oh you're going to get better you're going to you're going to grow to understand the person next to you must kill you must destroy you must stop that yeah right i mean the 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 whole the presence of the walls right in 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 their room originally was literally this manifestation of i want to keep these people apart i want to keep them at arm's length i want to just give them the opportunity to scream at each other but not get close enough to actually understand each other yeah. Or see things from each other's point of view, really. And we've we've ripped the barriers down between people now. We've removed those barriers and there is hope there. There is hope for that coming together. Yep. And the shard cannot stand that. Yeah. 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 That's a good point. I like that. So we have this moment here that we have to talk about, though, where uh, a, an asshole cradle sees Chicken Little and says, oh, look, a, a defenseless child. Huh. I guess I'll stab that yeah. for no reason other than I'm an asshole. And Tattletail throws herself in the way. She dropped the gun, so she only had her hands. Hey, Matt, what's the difference between, you know, senselessly charging in and and doing something stupid and suicide? Right. right? I mean, I mean, maybe this is Tattletail's full circle, right? Like, I think it is. Like the idea that she gets like, I mean, it's not like she hasn't risked her life to, to save people before in the story, but she's out of she's out of clever things to say. She's just throwing herself in the way to, practically speaking, throw herself on the knife so that it doesn't get chicken. Like she yeah. doesn't have any hope of winning this fight. Yeah. And let, let, I mean, let, I think let's be clear here. What Taylor did. I don't care about the morality of it. I don't care about whether it was the right decision or what the, or the wrong decision. What Taylor did was not suicide. That is not what Rex did to himself, right? Like you can, you can decide to link these two things up in your head all you want, but it's not the same. It is not the same thing. And what Victoria did in throwing herself into this fight and, and, and trying to defeat this thing to save her friends is not the same. Just like you throwing yourself in front of chicken little to save him is not suicide. That's ridiculous. That's absurd. That is fighting for the people you love and fighting to save the people you love. And you can't, Lisa, keep drawing this connection here because you don't want to lose the people you care about. I understand why she's doing it, but she's wrong. And maybe finally, finally now when she throws herself in front of Chicken Little, maybe she will understand what these people did and why they did them and stop making that that connection. Stop tying that back, tying every time someone she cares about uh, sacrifices themselves, tying it back to her original trauma. Maybe that is that is the way forward for her i hope so because it's it's ridiculous it is ridiculous to say (laughs) what taylor did is is that same thing it is not true not at all she's always had this kind of sneering contempt for the white hats as she calls them right 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 and 
like I wonder how much of that is directly connected to this idea that um, the heroes want to go out, go out in a blaze of glory, sacrificing themselves to save people. What idiots! What what self destructive fools! They want to kill themselves and and get social credit for doing it, right? Like yeah. you kind of insert tattletale monologue there, like yeah. which is really the most reductive and and an ungenerous possible, and and really just kind of silly. Like like that's just not yes. that's yes. that's not how. That's not how people are. Um, but mm-hmm. but I can see her thinking that way because of her background. Yeah. And maybe she'll be smart enough and conscious enough and aware enough to realize that when when Taylor threw herself in front of Scion or threw herself in front of Amy to unlock this power and Victoria throws herself in front of these people, they're doing it for the same reasons that she threw herself in front of Chicken Little. It's because they value these people. They value these lives and they want to do whatever they can to make sure those things are protected. Yeah. Um, and that is not the same as taking your own life. That is not the same thing. Yeah. Stop it, Lisa. <laughs> Stop it. That's my, this is, I'd be a great therapist. Stop it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's it's, uh, the, I'm kidding. I would, I would be a terrible therapist. Don't, don't listen to me for therapy, please. The, Nobody take that the wrong way. It's the daily method. Stop it. Yeah. Stop, Stop. it. I think that's a mad TV sketch, actually. I don't think that's a okay. Scott original. Never, I've never seen it, so I give you full credit. So, finally, uh, in the in this knife melee where everybody's getting sliced to pieces by his combat knife that he has because he is a lucid dreamer, the team manages to back him up against the piece of shelving, and then Sveta topples it onto him, crushing him and zoning out Grabo. And thus, Cradle dies, snagged. On a shelf in Snag's dreamer. Uh-huh. It's beautiful. Yep. Beautiful. So let's finally do it. Let's let's come full circle <laughs> and let's talk about Cradle. Um, we mentioned at the beginning of the episode how how he was stuck standing still. And I, I think this is this is to me the final conceit of Cradle's character and why he dies. Um, and, and I think we can see that in his final conversation, the final words he has with with Colt, because as we just said, these characters have now ripped down the barriers between themselves are uh, are together in a group. The cavalry arrives midway through this fight and everyone's supporting each other and together and in communion, except for cradle. He's all by himself. He's alone. All he has is the shard buddy. Um, and, and look, let's look at his final words to Coltar because he says, I'm supposed to enjoy being stuck, being trapped in the wilderness. Only two people to keep me company. No way to get home. No way to tinker. My agent slowly pressing in on me, demanding I build when I can't. I'm talking about the dreams, Cold is saying to him. You and me, we're in prison because we hurt a lot of people. Some of those people, we hurt a lot of people. Some of these people. But we can at least keep the dreams peaceful. I don't want peace, Cradle said. I want revenge. You all intruded in my life, my deal, my space, my dreams. Which on that front, he's got like a good point because they just did this whole dream room thing without telling him at all. But <laughs> I, I, I think that li- that final line and, and let's before we move on, let's give some credit to Colt here. Matt, yeah. who seems has finally like gotten it, finally like gotten and understood. Remember the, the frustration with Colt was that like she just didn't seem to understand what she did wrong and why it was wrong and why she should be punished for it. Right. And it seems at least in this moment that she's got some level of understanding of that, which is great. It's awesome. Yeah. Right. The, the gravity of, of everything is, has arrived with her. Yeah. That, that's, that's fantastic. This is her moment. We haven't really seen what she was dealing with. It's interesting because the, the, the typical cluster members 
didn't actually have to watch their dreams tonight. It was only the new people. Yeah. Um, but she's been faced with hers over and over and over again, presumably. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah. So we haven't seen her growth. We haven't seen her in a while, actually, but it's entirely plausible that maybe she's been gradually building toward this for some time. Yeah. Yeah. But, but cradle on the other hand has come full circle as well. And his full circle is, it's just the same circle over and over again because he has not changed. Uh, he's stuck doing the same thing at the beginning of the story. He wanted revenge here. Now, 16 arcs later, he still wants revenge. He's learned nothing. It seems he's, he's convinced himself that that change is impossible. There's no way to do it. There's no way to learn from this. There's no better way. The only way is through hatred. The only way is through revenge. And, and so he's done. And the story is done with him. The story says, okay, you've had plenty of opportunities. And so here you go. You're done. Yeah crushed by a shelf yeah. in a dream yep and so he's probably just comatose like you said yeah probably or yeah. he's like like tattletale said where like he's a blob of unstoppable power but i don't <laughs> think so i don't think that's what's gonna yeah. happen maybe yeah yeah i mean basically uh grasping self just manifests on the prison world and just starts Sweet. freaking out it. yeah awesome um yeah, but so let's we have to finish this up with this idea of holding on to anger, right? We have to take that pin out because I want to talk to you about this for a while. And I think we kind of hinted towards the difference, but the ideas of both Cradle and Victoria are holding on to anger. Cradle still hates everyone. She still hates Rain for what Rain did to him, still hates this entire experience, still hates it all, and all he wants is revenge. Um and he's holding on to that anger. And Victoria is is holding on to hers as well. She's holding on to her anger for Amy. But I do think these are different in important ways. I do think that the it is not just about the emotion you hold on to. It is how you react to that emotion, right? Like, Victoria has not tried to push, a, like, a big piece of rock on Amy. Right. <laughs> like, metaphorically or literally. She has not, she's mostly just been like, I'm happy hating you. And going away from you, whereas Cradle is blinded by that anger and hatred to where all he wants is revenge. All he wants is to seek out the destruction of the thing he hates. Uh, Victoria is not there and, and and not doing it. And I'm not saying that, like, it isn't possible for Victoria to head further down that path where that hatred turns into th- this Cradle-esque desire for revenge. Um, but it's not where she's at right now. And I think that, I think it is important to draw that distinction here. Cause my first reaction was, Oh look, they both are still hating people. That can't be good. Um, but it is different in distinct ways. And yeah. I think it's different in the way you talked about where she is owning that she is taking control of it. Right. And, and specifically her anger was, was basically her saying, I recognize I'm never going to get a chance to do anything about this. Mm-hmm. And I'm, and I'm choosing nonetheless to hold on to it. Yeah. as my dying thought <laughs> whereas cradle uh, is cradle is even in his dying thought like yeah. i want to kill you i am right. going to try to do anything to kill you and not just you anyone like yeah. what, the, what the fuck did chicken little ever right. do to you rain yeah or, I was, uh, I was, cradle yeah i was gonna say like he already caved in rain as far as he knows he just kind of has to stay to kind of keep things steady state mm-hmm. and rain is probably gonna die but instead, he he takes the risk. I don't know. That's how I interpret it as him taking the risk to, to try to go out of his way to kill more of them. Yeah. Because he really does. He 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 views it this way. You all intruded on my life. That's how yeah. he says it. It's 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 grown now. He wants revenge on all of them. He wants revenge on Victoria and Tattletail and the, the kids. 
Um, and that's what and that yeah. ki- that kind of anger does to you, right? Um, yeah. I mean, we see in this in this moment that his glasses are so scratched up they're not even usable anymore. So he's he's been blinded by this revenge. It's 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 attacking out. Uh, in all directions, like like some sort of multi hand grasping thing that it's going to just attack out and kill everything and anything that is is re- intruded in its in Cradle's domain. Um, it, it it doesn't care anymore about anything. It's just I want to destroy. I want to kill. I hate you all. I hate everything. Yeah. Everything should die. Yeah, he's been fully consumed. Yep. And yeah, like you said, that's that's his way of coming full circle. Except yeah. it's. It's not catharsis and it healing and peace. It's it's basically him doubling down on his own worst impulses. Yeah, I feel kind of bad for him a little bit. I mean, like I hate sure. him. I truly hate him. But it's it's tragic in a way. You know, you don't want like when when he was defeated after all the terrible things he did, but was not killed. There was a part of me that was like, oh, I hope there's a path. I hope there's a path forward for him. Maybe he'll finally understand and start to work towards some sort of some sort of healing. But clearly no never like that is not that is he's not interested in going down that path anymore um yeah no i agree i mean i remember when we did his interlude there was there was a lot of ability to put yourself in the position of someone who sees the world the way he does yeah yeah. and and he has taken all of that i mean for, for me i feel like he's taken all of that goodwill and squandered it like three or four times over yep yep um and completely earned this this uh uh ignominious death here oh yeah oh yeah yeah i am happy that his gravestone will have no epitaph that in a hundred years if the planet is still alive (laughs) that no one will remember who cradle is yeah i mean literally his body assuming he doesn't turn into a shard uh his body is going to just lie unmarked somewhere Mm -hmm. unchanging yeah yep so um having defeated him uh grasping self disappears the team makes their way out of the room, and on their way out, they see the other three shard manifestations frozen. I love this—the idea that, like, if it was a rain day, we wouldn't have gotten grasping self; we would have gotten—I forget L- what his lurching is. intruder. There you go. Um, and, and <laughs> Who, well, by all accounts, would have been a pushover. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. um, I, I like the fact that the detail that, like, this room is like spinny. Like, it's so mechanical and physical. This. Um, this, like, this is a a physical manifestation of a mental thing, right? It's, it's real, but it's not real. And like, there's a mechanical element to it where this, all these different shard guardians are on a, a dais and it yeah. rotates, like it, it physically right. rotates when it's the next one's turn to step up to the plate. This, this is something I kind of wanted to talk about, but I, I just don't think we can answer it yet. But the question was this space that they're in. Is this like they were 3D printed by uh, unfathomably advanced alien technology into this into this other dimension and they're actually here and these injuries are real? They're happening to real bodies that are actually in this space? Or is this a is this in the imagination of a shard? Is this a computer simulation? Are, are they being are they, have they been uploaded into a shard main, mainframe and they are data right now? I, and I have no idea which one of those options or maybe some other weird thing. Uh, w- w- what are we actually seeing? You know, my interpretation was they're just this is just a physical manifestation of data. But I I have no idea. And I don't even know what the difference would really yeah. like 
end up being. I, well, I can't help but think stuff like if you're in shard realm, then why can you break grasping selves arms? Right? Like, why wouldn't he just be like, I'm Agent Smith. My my arms are made out of infinitely strong whatever because this is this is the shard world. And yeah. Instead, they shatter as you would expect in the shatter if they were made of steel or whatever or, you know, yeah. So that's why I lean toward like this being some kind of quote unquote real space, whatever that means. I feel yeah. like we'll figure out more about it. That's why I kind of save it right. till the end. So um, what I mean, what are what are these guardians do you, I mean, so are these just the shards themselves? Just as just a literal manifestation of the shard? I, or is this just like a thing that the shard made to just chill for in, in case I, anyone ever tried to get through? <laughs> I mean, that's basically the other half of that question, right? Like sure, if this is yeah. if this is real shard realm, then are those the real shards? Was that grasping self that they fought or was that a projection in the same way that an inbringer is a kind of projection of of shardness coming from elsewhere yeah, it's not like well, you killed the shard when you killed an inbringer right so the fact that it disappeared seems to lend more towards the the data argument right yes maybe not though <laughs> maybe know. not though that, that, that's the thing is it, it lends toward it but i we can't be certain about anything yet sure sure there's good thoughts to bring up i agree that we do just do not have enough data to to actually come up with a good answer to that yeah yeah so they make their way out of that room um, they reach the plane of red crystal and Victoria sweet talks damsel into showing them <laughs> the secret of repairing themselves, which then gets them all in working order. So uh, there is this moment here where, where Victoria has basically like gotten damsel spot on her, like read of her was just perfect because damsel says to them, can't replace me if I'm good at this, yeah. which is like literally admitting that her, that the exact fear that Victoria thought she had, which is that like, given the opportunity they'll get swan song back and it's like no not if i can do this you can't and again that's so like just devastating to me that like she's so terrified about that the truth of that that other people will choose one of them over the other um and she's gonna do whatever it can include helping them shocker um <laughs> to stop yeah. that from happening yeah well i think that victoria has her number though she, she oh yeah absolutely, absolutely you know sweet sweet talks her like i said so yeah <laughs> I forget what the exact line was, but it was something to the effect of, isn't that a little like on the nose or isn't it a little yeah. obvious? It's like, is that possible with you? Uh, <laughs> Perfect. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. So do we understand what's actually happening with that? Like you look into the shards or you look into the the crystal, right? And you see ref multiple reflections of yourself. You see multiple versions of yourself. And then it's just like, you're just like, being pushed into a version of yourself and the that one pops out i don't know i don't know i feel like you're seeing manifestations of all the data that the shards collected about you and um so you're just hitting like like file load non-injured version of me yeah but poss possibly just as simple as like reload from last save <laughs> yeah 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 um, but I mean, the other thing that's interesting here is we see reflections that weren't me and weren't us glimpses of the real world pale in the midst of those flashes. So weren't me and weren't us. So is this the sh is this the network? Like, because th this is where I get confused because like the shard network's not connected anymore. Right. So they are. Li it should literally just be whatever network that they have created by all going into this dream room together. Yeah. Um, I think these are the questions to be asking 
And and I bet I bet that if we got really weird, we could find we like we could go into the, the thematic weeds and talk about what could be what could be happening here because like the idea that this red crystal shard world, which which definitely abuts against like locations that shards can access. Um, I mean, okay, so 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 my <laughs> my guess is something like all the shards can totally access this place. They just don't know how to talk to each other. They oh, literally need they literally need a hub to coordinate them and be their proxy of communication. Yeah, I like that. I like that interpretation a lot. That 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 really does a lot to help me understand what this place is because it certainly seems like we're indicating that this is the shard space, right? This is not just Victoria shard space or not just rain shard space. This is the place. Um, And so I think that makes sense that, yeah, they all they're all here, but those connections are impossible. I like that. Yeah. Okay. cool. Uh, The chapter more or less wraps up with some more great writing uh, from our once again, very introspective protagonists. We'd we'd revisited our starting points, the traumas that plunged us into this world. And by Candy's words to the others, I was pretty sure there had been a point or two there where just about all of us had resigned ourselves to our deaths. We'd faced the visceral ends of our journeys, the end of the vast majority of parahumans, death at the hands of powers, starts and endings all faced together. And this, I looked out at the landscape, is everything that was in between. <laughs> Which I like because it's the, the idea of it being between. It's, yeah. It's... it's uh, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, I just love I love that line starts and endings all face together. Like we talked yeah. last week about how they all saw their biggest trauma and that was this unifying event for them all to witness that the one thing that everyone went through. But yeah, I, I didn't phrase it as like that was the start of their journey. But that is absolutely true. Victoria is fundamentally true here that this this terrible event that happened to them is the start of the journey that led them here. And they almost all got to experience the end. They experienced basically the the peace that is found upon death amongst people that are care, care about each other and are a community with each other. Yeah. And so they've experienced those two things. And now here's all that middle stuff. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I feel like I remember us talking 180 years ago about <laughs> the idea that like um, walking a mile in another's shoes can potentially be a good way of of forming empathy with them. Yeah. Um, but like the way the shards did it is they showed them like they got this group of, of people um, who had basically they all had a reason to hate and distrust rain and thus showing them his vision and especially kind of the, ed- the edited dream of his every night was like just making it worse and worse and worse. Mm-hmm. And, and um, it basically it was just like deepening all of their, all of the traumas, but like this idea here where they've all seen each other's triggers or, or, or a kind of uh, twisted version of them, but they're only going to have to see it once. This is really just purely a healing experience yeah. through, through um, commiseration and uh, mutual understanding and mutual support and all of these wonderful human things. Yeah, I agree. I so totally cool. agree. Yeah. And I can't wait to see what they do next together because now they're going to go into this, this world together as a team and it's going to be good. Yep. So that wraps up the chapter. Yes, it does. 
So let's get on to these discussion questions. Last week's question was, using dreams in storytelling can be hit or miss. What is your favorite use of dreams in fiction, and why is it effective? And uh, we got a bunch of uh, great answers. Um, Yeah, uh, some spoilers. So if if your answer was like a big block of spoiler text, I just didn't pull that, because if you feel it's spoilery enough, I don't want to accidentally spoil someone on it. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Like, uh, it's always a risk when we ask these favorite blank in fiction questions because, like, yeah, yeah. It, 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 we do get a lot of great answers. But, I mean, obviously, obviously, the, yeah, I'm not going to spoil every piece of media ever written on this <laughs> yes. podcast. Yeah, uh, Farm Fresh Hornets says Bloodborne, the video game. Bloodborne's take on sorry, Blood, Bloodborne takes on Lovecraft's good ideas and strips out the racism until all Yay. that remains is the fascinating fear of the unknown. Bloodborne symbolism is fascinating to me because of the way it uses dreams as a medium to illustrate the two paths it lays out, understanding versus ignorance. It's hard to get into the specifics uh, of, of understanding what, what this means without spoilers, but the game presents ignorance as its own sort of happiness. The greater your insight, the easier it is to put, your, to put together what you're really doing and make your mark on the dream. But the more horror you feel, the more things beyond your capacity to understand begin to make themselves known. So really, is a dream with no consequence such a terrible thing? Whatever happens in a dream, they don't necessarily attach to the main story. Death even doesn't tend to matter. In Bloodborne, it's all a dream. In a world without consequence or reality, do any of your actions matter? What's to stop you from getting lost in the dream, giving up on your goal? That sounds fun. I've never really heard anything about Bloodborne, but now I kind of am interested in it. Yeah, it's one of those from software games that I'm bad at video games and I never played it because I'm bad at video games. Oh, it's actually hard. Oh, then I wouldn't be able to play. Yeah, it's I'm sorry. It's very hard. Actually, (laughs) Dark Souls people would probably be like, it's not that hard. (laughs) Okay, but it's supposed to be it's supposed to be the easier one of that series. I'm not on the tier of, of being able to even think about Dark Souls. Sure, sure. Yeah. All right. Next up, we have literal headcanon who says David Lynch. A number of his films heavily feature dreams or dreamlike locales. There are numerous dream sequences in Lost Highway that are used to give an intimate glimpse into the psyche and sanity of our protagonists. There's the Red Room in Twin Peaks. My favorite dreams in Lynch, however, are the dreams in Eraserhead. The primary reason why dreams are so effective in Eraserhead is their thorough proliferation of the work. Lynch abandons any pretense of the film being a reflection of reality from the word go with his use of the man in the planet sequence as an allegory for sex and impregnation. He furthers this throughout the film in both subtle ways, the elevator doors always taking a few seconds longer to close than they should, and not so subtle ways, the infamous chicken diner sequence um dinner sequence yeah uh, david lynch is a really great example of just using dreams to explore weirdness in a, in a way that's beyond it makes it makes his his movies very unsettling and odd and you can never quite believe what is real and what isn't and it really makes them feel otherworldly in very cool ways i agree with that a whole bunch even um, yeah even the minor stuff like the elevator taking too long to close it it feels like a dream thing to happen yeah even yeah. though that's not actually a dream um mm-hmm. I, i'm like embarrassed to admit that i've never seen a racer head oh man you gotta watch it you gotta I watch will. it i want Have to see Mah- mulholland drive mulholland drive has some good dreams in it too nope he loves the dreams i need to watch that too they have a lynch weekend and they just go completely crazy. All right. Alternative arrival says Blade Runner. I think in terms of dreams and fiction, the example that comes to mind is the, un- the unicorn sequence in the good cut of Blade Runner. It's super short and doesn't really make much sense at first, but together with a few hints that only come at the film's conclusion, totally recontextualizes the ending and adds a really compelling level of ambiguity. 
I think it really works because of its unobtrusiveness. Dream sequences tend to cause problems, for me at least, because they represent a total absence of stakes and a break in the action of the story. The anxieties and thoughts that are revealed through them can also have difficulty having real impact, especially when they convey information that's already presented through other means that don't rob the story of momentum. That's that's true. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I find even books that I really like that use dreams, I find that it completely messes up my sense of stakes and I'm just like, yeah, I'm just, I'm just bored. Like, like even if it's important, like even if it's like a prophetic dream, I'm like, yeah, but it's, nothing's going to happen here. Let's just move on to the next part of actual reality. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it's just like just generally it's just a it's just a, it, it can be a really lazy way of explaining things via dream like like we said last week there's no rules right you see you you kind of remove yourself from limitations and you can do whatever you want but it is kind of just stagnant um it 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 doesn't it doesn't matter except in very specific ways and um so using them too lazily can be really boring um i agree that the dream in blade runner is perfect it is and it's only in some versions of it (laughs) oh my god yeah it's so weird right so yeah, yeah, it's really weird. Considering it completely changes like the entire last bit of the movie. Right. Uh, um, so Dalinar Colon, uh, or sorry, Manukos says Dalinar Colon from Stormlight Archive, which is a series Matt and I have not read. So uh, in the first two books, he has visions during storms, and it is a big mystery what, whether those are God sent or just made up. In the um, usually, I dislike dreams in my stories because I I am sure a lot of people mention they kind of fall flat. Yeah, that's true. Um, I like this in particular because it doesn't do too many weird things at the same time, closes the chapter on the previous arc of the character and gives us some relaxation of the very intense finale. So I, I'm going to take your word for that because I haven't read the series, but uh, I agree that the, just the general idea that, uh, that dreams tend to fall flat. Yeah, the idea of doing too many weird things at the same time. Like I don't know if anybody in these answers listed Song of Ice and Fire, but I find those dreams to be... Um, not not my favorite way of doing that like like uh, there's a few times when jamie will have like a dream and and it's it's just a a wild ride and you're like yeah i get i get i get that there's a lot of stuff being communicated here but um it's too much it's too much there's too much weird stuff happening and now we're in a cave and this person's here and and it's like okay i i can't keep up with all this this isn't Mm -hmm. how so yeah I, i like i like pointing out the idea that it can just be Trying to do too many things at the same time. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Hobo Demon says, The dream of character Alfred Packer in the classic piece of cinema titled, cinema titled Cannibal, the musical, mainly because <laughs> it exemplifies Wrigley Bubbles' critique of how dreams in media tend to be portrayed. The sequence provides no depth, but it does what dreams do in real life. It cements the important ideas in the memory and brain space of the observer. In the case of the dream sequence, in which Trey Parker and Robert moratore engage in horribly enacted ballet to depict the goals of the protagonist establish the antagonistic relationship double down on an inequality in masculinity and a murder occurs the audience gets beaten over the head with parker's sorry with packer is it parker or packer anyway with packer's fears as he recognizes social dynamics that later manifest in full force when he discovers that his horse leanne has left him for frenchy Kawazan, never seen this movie. I have no idea what the hell is happening. As well as providing a means for Packer to punish himself emotionally after profiting off the death of Israel's swan via consuming his tasty flesh toasted atop a pile of burning shoes. Okay, so that I feel like I just read a dream that I just had a dream. Yes, Am I awake? Yes. 
so Cannibal the Holocaust, uh, the the musical Cannibal the Holocaust is something different. Cannibal the musical <laughs> is a that's a Trey Parker and Matt Stone, the South Park guys. Uh, so it's a, a musical about being a cannibal. Uh, I saw it once upon a time, a long time ago. I do not remember a lot of it, um, but I do like what what Hobo Demon talked about here, like. Um, it, it does what dreams do in real life. It cements important ideas in the memory and brain space of the observer, right? So it's a functional dream. Yeah. It, it is doing something in a way that maybe the characters can't say it literally, but in a dream, we can explore the characters going through those things. Yeah, it's a storytelling That's device. Important. Sure. Cool. Uh, so Pedatorian talks about Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, another thing I don't think... You, have you seen that? Nope. I haven't seen it. Um, it has a dream sequence that, by all accounts, should not work at all. In fact, it has a few of their biggest pet peeves with dream sequences. One, it doesn't tangibly move the plot forward. Two, it functions as a glorified recap episode. And three, it interrupts super exciting A-plot developments. Yet somehow, it's like absolutely phenomenal? Crucially, they think it uses the dream framework to do a deep dive into the perspective and internal conflicts of an important side character who up until that point had been pretty inscrutable to the viewer. So even though it isn't advancing the plot, it's doing important work in terms of fleshing out the character and the world. Despite being a recap episode, it also manages to have a really strong arc of its own that both emphasizes the themes of the show and foreshadows the POV character's decisions later in the story. It doesn't feel like an irrelevant digression. It's cohesive and with and IMO essential to the work as a whole. I like that. I think, I think the idea of using a dreams as sort of like an interlude, um, in a, in a medium that can't do like an interlude chapter where we can dive into a side character and explore them more fully in a way we couldn't through the normal structure of the show. I think that's a, an effective way to use dreams for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a cool trick. Yeah. I, I like, yeah. I like that they, they point out that it does everything wrong and yet the one thing it does right kind of redeems it. EXE JPEG Windows Media uh, Viewer. In most stories, I've found that dreams have often just been used to flesh out the characters a bit. Uh, so I have mostly ranged from ambivalent to appreciative regarding it. One of the few novels I can remember dreams playing a major role in is Superpowered's. They are essential for the main cast to even address the primary conflict of the series, seriously affect the relationships of two main characters, and serve to flesh out advance the development of other characters. Sometimes I felt it took up too much of the plot, but how much it affected the story is tangible in, in tangible ways makes it the best use for me. Yeah. Okay. Never, I've never read that. I, I keep hearing about the superpowers. I guess you hear about it a lot in, in superhero circles. Right. Um, but, um, that's cool. Mm -hmm. Uh, Wolf Tamer nine says, um, did I skip? No, nope. I'm good. Right. Yeah. Okay. In Steven Universe, Steven can enter people's dreams when he's asleep. This, along with the other powers like astrally projecting to possess or communicate with people, highlights the themes of empathy and understanding other people that separ separate Steven from other heroes. There's lots of flashy action and combat sequences throughout the show, but pretty much every major conflict between Steven and, and any antagonist tends to revolve around Steven trying to understand where they're coming from and convincing them to stop or change. In this way, empathy is Steven's ultimate superpower, and the dreams are a big part of that of of getting that empathy. I love that. I love that a lot. Yeah. Dreams is a way of exploring empathy like we did in, in board. Yeah. <laughs> it's perfect. Cool. Um, all right. Yeah, that's, that's fun. Uh, Kuyua Hiawag points out hollow Knight, Um, and also bloodborne man. Hollow Knight's like a big spoiler to the whole story of that. So we didn't pull that okay. one over, uh, in bloodborne. The dream was created and maintained by Lovecraftian great ones. 
There are multiple dreams in the game, but my favorite is the Hunter's Nightmare. The Hunter's Nightmare is an incredibly distorted version of the past where blood-drunk hunters end up reliving the violent old days when hunters slew beasts by the hundreds. The nightmare serves to reveal a lot about the history of the hunt, the church, the experimentation with the old blood. Significant historical figures are encountered and just so happen to be some of the coolest boss fights ever. This Bloodborne game sounds fucking (laughs) awesome, yeah. All right, now we have Daedalus Fallen Zero, who, instead of picking a specific example of dreams used well in, in media, points out to how certain authors use dreams in ways that they don't like. When authors use a dream as an explicitly narrative device, giving shitloads of outright exposition to the reader and main character, it's lazy as hell. This is especially common in books with a magical system where they put in clairvoyant dreams without any reason because they need an excuse to give us the info. It breaks the logic behind the world's magic and breaks immersion for me instantly. They go on to say dreams, in my opinion, should be used to show the subconscious thoughts of a character. The key word there being show dreams open up a really unique possibility of throwing away the rules of realism and just turn to metaphors and symbols into living, breathing parts of the experience. The level of symbolism that can be achieved with dreams is so much higher than with basic first person narration because of that disregard you're able to have for the sensibility of it, creating a world that itself represents the character's inner self. Cool. That's a I love great it. answer. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, pretty happy with with that answer even though mm-hmm. even though they don't give an example yeah i i agree completely the idea of like so many fantasy novels just have a dream where it's almost like the author is just like i guess fantasy novels are supposed to have dreams so i guess i'll put this in here but i don't really so yeah um don't don't do that it's boring vanny the squid says i have to say Inderall, a skyrim mod which in fact is its own independent video game it does not play, take place in the Skyrim universe, merely reuses engine and assets. Um, incidentally, available on Steam, apparently. Uh, <laughs> the game literally begins with a dream chock full of foreshadowing, which then recurs throughout the entire game with variations each time. The dream is absolutely critical to the plot on several levels and practically requires replaying after having ended the game. Other dreams feature in the game all just as plot and theme relevant, and the game repeatedly attempts and succeeds in tricking the player into thinking some dreams to be reality. The theme of dreams as a whole and the nature of subjectivity of reality crops up on the regular throughout the entire work, and I could discuss it forever were it not for how it destroys, by way of spoilers, a little-known game very much worth experiencing directly. That sounds awesome. We're finding a lot of really interesting uh, catches here. Yeah. Up next, we have Thunderfulness, who talks about the kid show Arthur, which I was surprised by this answer, but I, I think they give a really good answer. Um, dreams and nightmares are constant, consistently used to show inner characters' inner feelings and anxieties. The show is fairly well known for having pretty bizarre and unusual dream slash fantasy sequences, mostly centered around whatever the kid is stressing about in that episode. They work well because the dreams are often ludicrous situations from an adult's perspective, but they help make sense of what's going on inside the minds of young children, especially when that aspect of the narr- narrative needs to be conveyed to kids, the target audience. I like that a lot. Like the, uh, the idea of using dreams specifically to uh, to reach a certain type of audience in, in, in a way that only they would understand because it's they th- kids think in a different kind of yeah. way. Right. Um, I like that. It, it, that. That's a great idea, especially there, because it's not always obvious to them like um, what about the situation is upsetting. And the dream is a way of of uh, stylizing that for them, saying like this is this is what is bothering the character about this, or maybe even showing the, the kid themselves. This is what is bothering you about this situation. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. That's cool. I like that. Calinero, nine, eight, five. 
goes super, super, super deep into the dreamscape in a tabletop RPG called Mage the Awakening. They talk about how the dream <clears throat> is divided into multiple layers and how those different layers all represent your personal wants, desires, and weaknesses. But also interestingly, there's a shared dream of humankind and different ideas have different prominence there based on geography and public perception of those areas. Sounds fun. It's cool this idea that like you like one, on one layer is your own individual dreamscape and then on the next layer is like the dreamscape of humanity and what the, how that would look and what that would differ. It's kind of like taking the cultural consensus of society yeah. and and literally manifesting it in a yeah. way. I think that's a really fun idea. The, the collective unconscious concept. Yeah. Cool. All right. Heaven's Chocolate uh, says Attack on Titan. And there was a big block text of spoilers. So Attack on yeah, Titan. I guess there's some if, dreams in that. Yeah. If you've watched it, go read Heaven's Chocolate Answer. I'm sure it's really great. Yeah. Moving on. Sarah Penguin says uh, Final Fantasy and then just Final Fantasy 8 and then just uh, black black text. So Yeah. I uh, have played Final Fantasy 8, so I can comment on this one because I did read it. And Sarah Penguin. Yes, <laughs> I agree. I agree with everything you wrote there. Beat Beat Nemesis says, I generally dislike dream sequences in fiction. They're tolerable when they're brief and kept to an injection of weirdness and emotion. I find it's almost more effective if we miss a character's dream and instead simply see them the next morning looking tired and unsettled. That said, I enjoy the brief dream sequences in American Gods. They fit with the dreamlike half their nature of the whole book. Plus, there's a great little plus there's a great little detail that doesn't make sense until the end that takes everyone by surprise. And I know what detail uh, Beat Nemesis is talking about there. And I agree the the dreamscapes of American Gods is very specific and weird and, and and helps establish the otherworldliness of the gods in that story i've um, i've read that book twice and i'm not sure what detail he's talking about so you have to talk to, uh, talk to me later about this i'm disappointed i mean I'm, we did a whole book club i mean i'm it. sure i know what it is i just i'm, I'm not what 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 detail what detail what detail anyway uh Peter enigma <laughs> says Sandman is the only work of fiction I've seen that handles how weird dreams are because Sandman is a 10-volume examination of the power of dreams because Sandman is all about dreams. The main character is an anthropomorphic personification of dreams. The series uses irregular comic panels, art that evokes rather than depicts, and empty space beautifully to show the strangeness of the dream world. It gives us terrifying nightmares and comforting dreams and everything in between. I love that it showed us the metaphorical power of dreams in addition to the fantastical one. It's the very definition of great fantasy. It's just an incredible book series. I've read the first two volumes of Sandman, and I agree with Peta on what I've seen. I think it's the, the dreamscape is very trippy and wonderful in that in that story of what I've seen. And I, I'm guessing it's only going to get better and more complicated as it goes on. It's another thing where I'm that's like always been on my to read list and I yeah. always forget about it. Well, apparently you hate Neil Gaiman because you can't remember American I Gods. I guess so. so it, I'm, I'm it makes just sense going that crazy. You haven't bothered. Yeah. All right. Last but certainly not least, we have this guy called Wildbow who says, uh, I think dreams in fiction tend to suffer because they lack depth. Whatever happens in a dream, they don't necessarily attach to the main story. Death even doesn't tend to matter. I'll chime in with Buffy. Restless. Ridiculous amount of foreshadowing for future events makes it essential watching or rewatching if you want to see how the greater Buffy storyline knits together. There is subtle foreshadowing events that happen several seasons later, tiebacks to earlier seasons, recontextualizations of relationships, and groundwork laid for the setting's cosmology. Plus, you know, it's Buffy, which is great. Reminder to Matt that he really needs to get around to watching Buffy. Wow. Oh. So, Matt, what do you think about this one? Because surely you've watched Buffy, right? Because um, I've been telling you to do that for a while. You know, I get another calendar yeah. reminder to watch Buffy. 
because Scott, I don't know if we've said this on the podcast. Scott gives me, <laughs> Scott actually has put recurring calendar reminders on my fucking Google calendar to tell me to watch Buffy. Um, so, uh, no, I haven't yet, though. But uh, they are thanks. they are only quarterly, but they will uh, increase to monthly in 2020. <laughs> so just be ready. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. OK, well, that's good. Thanks for warning me. I love that. Restless is one of my favorite dream examples ever. I think it's a beautiful episode that does that kind of combines everything that people have been saying about what good dream sequences in stories can do. It is very visual. It is very chock full of metaphor and meaning a lot of which is not even clear. Um, it, it, it like weaves through dreams in the way that like it just like scenes jump from one to another without any connecting tissue. Um, it's image heavy. It's powerful. It's important to what's going on later. It serves as kind of this beautiful coda on a, a very mixed season of the show. Um, and it, it establishes where the show is going to go forward. It, it is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful episode of television. If you've seen Buffy the Vampire Slayer, if you've seen this episode and you haven't watched, um, what is the name of the uh, Passion of the Nerd? It's a YouTube channel that does deep dive explorations of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. They did a, a whole like 45 minute episode on Restless and it is beautiful. Please go watch it. It's one of the greatest breakdowns of this episode I've seen. And it's one of the best dream sequences ever. So Wildbo, congratulations. You gave the correct answer and you win the prize. Matt, what's the prize? Um, the prize is uh, that I guess I have to watch Buffy now. Yay. At some point. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, discussion question for this week is uh, send us a mailbag question. Yeah. There. Um, yeah. That's it. You can email to us at gotwormpod at gmail.com or in the Reddit thread for this very episode. Please, um, please leave it there. Yeah. And please write mailbag in your response just once. Just write the word mailbag because I just control F for right. mailbag and that will make my life so much easier. Please. And it, Thank you. Like it would kind of help to make them a, a length that is reasonable to read out loud. Um, just, yes. Just, yes. you know, yeah. One or two sentences. Not a discussion question and answer. Uh, just a what do you think about blah 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 yeah. all right that's all we got for you this week on we've got ward you guys are all part of this show so feel free to provide us with advice questions or thoughts on this week's reading you can reach us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com that's where you send those questions as well follow us on twitter at gotwormpod that's where you can see our live reads you can see my personal twitter at scottdaily85 and i'm gonna be um at fantastic fest the genre film festival in austin for the next week so if you want to see uh hear about the movies i'm watching or see what's going on down there it's a great time to follow me so you should do that also i'm just a fun guy follow me on twitter and you know i got another fun guy that you should follow on twitter his name is at more din fun guy. That's right. More din a male. More 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 a din a More yeah. dynamic. You know what the what? You know what the funniest thing in the world is what? when uh when our our friends over at Do the Right Thing are reading your story on on their podcast and they're trying to pronounce your name and it's fucking impossible because yeah. you picked the most obnoxious. Can you just change it to like Matt Freeman seven? Um, no. If you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world that you can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find all the shows we do over at our website, doofmedia.com. That's where you'll find mm, What You Say. That's our new podcast where we're talking about the OC episode by episode. This week we did episode five. So we're moving right along. We're going to be done with that show before we know it. Lots of teen drama. Yeah. 
That's um, that's a good <laughs> clip there. It's pretty impressive. I don't know anything about that. Um, <laughs> and if you like any of our doof media shows and want to support them, please consider donating to our Patreon account at patreon.com slash doofmedia. You can donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Supporting us there on Patreon gives you tons of great bonuses like the ability to vote in our quarterly fan art and costume contests, hangout sessions with the Doof crew, of which there is one of those happening this Friday. We're going to have a whole bunch of Doofers, like like most of them, actually. It's going to be a me. lot of people. Not Scott, like almost every, almost everybody else. Um, and then access wow. to, to live streams of our recording sessions and the excellent Discord that uh, we are always in all day long. <laughs> Special thanks. Uh, sorry. Um, and as always, before you leave patreon.com where you are entering your donation for us, also <laughs> go over to patreon.com slash Wildo and donate to, to Wildo because, uh, you know, this is his world. This is his dream room um, that we are all trapped in um, uh, between the, the walls. Yeah, but we removed the barriers, though, so we can all be friends together. Yes, and now we Just, have to fight. Oh, my, oh, oh, God, it's coming. It's over us. It's the size of a, a planet. Grab this stick. Scott, run. Nah, I'm good. I'm just going to hang out here. Okay. Special thanks to new patrons. Bidoof's uh, at the $1 level, Matthew C. and Giz L. And Doof Troop at the $10 level, Andrew T. Um, and Doof Warrior at the $20 level, Julie M. Thank you so much, all of you. We really appreciate it. We couldn't do this without you. Yeah, we do. The The magic number to make the Dark Tower podcast happen is now six. Six more people. That's almost down to one cradle hand. <laughs> just, just one cradle hand and then just another cradle finger. And then we're talking about Dark Tower. I am so excited about that that show. And we're getting really close. So uh, you can be the one that, that pushes us over that hill. That towery <laughs> hill. I was going to say something that was Dark Tower spoilery, and then I had to immediately halt myself. Yeah, you, you just get used to doing that, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys, if you cannot afford to donate, of course, that's OK. We would never want you to to uh, give money that you cannot afford. But there's tons of ways you can help us out still. You can share the podcast. You can talk about us everywhere, anywhere. On top of that weird mountain that I almost spoiled Dark Tower from. Um, or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Just go in there, hit five stars, type some nice words like, you guys are neat, thanks, with an exclamation point. Um, you can even say the word yeet in there. I think that, is that, is that good? I don't... Yeah, I, I, I don't I know. I don't get that word, but... You can just yeet. type like yeet, 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 yeah. yeet, yeet, yeet. And then as long as it's five stars, that will contextualize the yeets as being... Positive. Positive yeets. Yeah. 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 There you go. <laughs> well, that's all we got for you for the show this week. We'll be back next week with our mailbag episode. And in two more weeks, we're going to be yeeting four chapters at the, in one episode. I hate you. <laughs> <laughs>